When I was a teenager, I was biking to the store for my girlfriend. I had stopped on the side of the road by the entrance of our neighborhood. I had pulled over to the side of the road so that I wouldn't be in the way of cars. And as I got up to get back on my bike, I heard kind of this movement through the trees on the side of the road that I was on. And as I looked up, there were these two tall, hairy figures that kind of looked back at me. And they were walking kind of like a, a man and a woman do when they're out on a date. One, you know, one had his arm wrapped around the other. They both looked back at me. One pulled the other in close and then kind of ushered it to continue walking. And they just walked off into the tree line. I wasn't sure what they were. Yeah, they were probably like seven feet tall, real skinny, real thick hair. Figured, I don't know, Bigfoot, teenagers in costumes, something, I don't know. They definitely looked like they were going somewhere. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old... Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back to all of our fantastic listeners. Oh, you are just the prettiest little thing I have ever seen. I'm so excited that you are here with me today to go through this rollicking good time of exploring all of the strange and wonderful stories that surround the topic at hand today. I couldn't do it without you. I wouldn't do it without you. This one's for you. And we want to encourage all of our listeners to reach out to us in any which way you can, which could be through Instagram at Just a Story Pod, Twitter at Just a Story Pod, Facebook at Just a Story Pod. I feel like I'm, is every answer C? Yes. <laughs> Always see. And also, you can reach out to us on our website. Right. That's a place where we keep knowledge. We put the sources up for each and every episode of Just a Story. We also showcase my illustrations there, and you can go check those out. We sometimes include videos, what have you. And there's a contact form there if you want to reach out or if you just want to leave a few words on any episode that you are particularly interested in, we would love to hear from you there. On the website, you'll also find links to our merch store. We have t-shirts and we have sweatshirts and we have shower curtains if you want one, if that's what you're into. You could drape yourself in our logo. If you do that, please send photos. That sounds amazing. So that's one great way to help support the show and get something cool. Neato shirt designed by Samantha. Also, you can find links to our Patreon page. Oh, and that's where people who really love us sign up to become sustaining members. And if you sign up for Patreon, you can get fun rewards like stickers, access to Patreon-exclusive mini-episodes, and also chances to come on the show. Or do a digital meetup, which all the cool kids are doing. Which we'll be having our first digital meetup in March. So if you are interested in signing up for that, anybody, go ahead and sign up now. Oh, also, if there's any specific merchandise you're interested in seeing us put together that you want and are not finding, let us know. And if you are considering becoming a Patreon member and there is a reward level that you don't see that you'd like to see, reach out to us and just let us know. We are perfectly willing to work with anybody on anything. We like to give our listeners what they want. 
And we are sitting by the fire today, ready to record, dressed cozily for the winter. This is true. We are wearing our brand new hats. These are not just any hats. No, no. These are custom made with love and care by Allie of Paranormal Knits. And we just wanted to say thank you. Thank you. We love them so much. And we want everyone to go find her and make her make more hats because she makes them well. And they're amazing. Right. I have one with a sandhill crane. Oh, I thought it was the Jersey Devil. It is. Or is it? Or the Mothman. Yes, maybe. All of the above. It's like like a Rorschach. Exactly. And she designed one specifically for Sam that's Ouija themed. And it's amazing. I am so excited about my hat. I'm probably going to be taking it around and showing it to random people. And also another great way to reach out to us is the Urban Legend Hotline. The Just a Story Urban Legend Hotline, that is the one. And you can dial in at 512-222-3375. And we are so excited because this is one that came in through the interwebs. Yes, the vacuum tubes. That Al Gore invented. Thank you, Mr. Gore. And it was brought to us today by Isaac Hamilton. And he described some of his experiences. With what? Maybe Bigfoot. 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 So, Bigfoot. Have you heard of Bigfoot? I've heard of Bigfoot. I've also heard that the plural of Bigfoot is Bigfoots. Well, of course. Not Big Feet. Because his name is Bigfoot. <sighs> it drives me crazy. But anyway. It's right. Yes, but it's like after you realize that a goose is a goose and two goose are geese and a moose is a moose, but two moose are not meese. <laughs> They're meese. It's so wrong after you think about it. So Bigfoot has become such a huge part of modern folklore. It absolutely is. This is something that has continued to grip the imaginations of people all over the world in various cultures. But it's I feel like it's become especially well entrenched and well circulated since we've had more at-home video and photography equipment. Oh, definitely. But if you ask any Bigfoot enthusiast, they'll be quick to tell you that Native Americans have been talking about Bigfoot for millennia. Have they? Maybe. Okay. So a lot of the sightings of Bigfoot, also known as Sasquatch. Let us define. Define. A Bigfoot or a Sasquatch is a large hominid, typically larger than the average human and smarter than the average bear. It has big shoes, but it does not wear them. It only leaves big footprints. It's also said to smell really bad and make weird howling noises and have a wide swinging gait. And also a ridge atop its head, which is a common identifier. So typically it is also said to have a short neck or a high trapezius muscle that makes its shoulders appear to angle into its neck more. Right, giving it that classic kind of appearance that we've seen over and over again. Now... Native Americans do have a lot of stories about large, giant, furry, hairy, wild men. Yeah, I don't know if I said it was hairy. It's definitely always hairy. Always hairy. And the Hendersons. I loved that movie when I was a kid. (laughs) I wouldn't watch it. Why? Was it too scary? No. Was it too ridiculous? Yes. (laughs) No such thing for an eight-year-old. It was a frequent blockbuster rental. So, in the Kwakalutz tribe, they have this creature called a Zinkwa. I'm sure I'm butchering that. 
And she is this ogress mm-hmm. that steals children. So she's this cannibal giant, takes usually female form, and she eats children. And she cries, hoo-hoo, hoo-hoo. Like an owl. Like kind of. Or like, hoo-hoo. Like making this like noise. They always have these kind of noises that call people. Or they frequently do. To attract the children. Sometimes she'll even imitate the child's grandmother's voice. Well, this sounds like a pretty standard old crone legend. Right? It sounds a lot like the stories talked about in Japanese folklore. Um, But yeah, this is very common. It's a very common idea. And so throughout time, we have recordings of these stories. So as far back as 1792, we have writings from Jose Mariano Mozino in his book Noticia de Nutka, which he was writing about the Northwest area. That he was exploring. The Pacific Northwest, like in yes. America? Okay. He said, I do not know what to say about the Matlocks, inhabitant of the mountainous district, of whom all have an unbelievable fear. They imagine his body as very monstrous, all covered with stiff black bristles, a head similar to a human one, but with much greater, sharper, and stronger fangs than those of the bear, extremely long arms and toes and fingers armed with long curved claws. His shouts alone, they say, Force those who hear them to the ground, and any unfortunate body he slaps is broken into a thousand pieces. And so if you continue to read throughout the book, he also talks about this creature, this Matlocks, in a creation tale as one of the beings fighting between good and evil, and it being the evil being. So it's like the personification of the bad side of things. Yes, kind of like we're talking about in the Antichrist episode. Just just so many cultures have this tradition of the good and bad Mm -hmm. creationist struggle story. Did he specify in his writing, do the people still believe that it occupies Earth? Is it like a literal... Inhabitant yes. of the yes. okay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you can see some Bigfootiness. Yeah, I can see where they're getting the idea. There are a few other citations I found on different Bigfoot sites of older writing from this time period. That was the only one that I felt kind of fit in well. But then mm-hmm. on reading more of the book, you see that there's more to the story. There's always more to the story. That's why these episodes are so gosh darn long. So another writing is from Reverend David Green. He was a missionary living in northern Washington, and this was in a letter from April 1840 that he was writing to the Secretary of the American Board of Commissioners to Foreign Missions. And he said, I suppose you will bear with me if I trouble you with a little of their superstition, which has recently come to my knowledge. They believe in the existence of a race of giants which inhabit a certain mountain off to the west of us. They are men-stealers. They come to the people's lodges in the night when the people are asleep and take them and put them under their skins and take them to their place of abode without even walking. When they wake in the morning, they're wholly lost, not knowing in what direction their home is. The account that they give of these giants will in some measure correspond with the Bible account of their race of beings. Nephilim? Right, it sounds a lot like the Nephilim. They say their track is about a foot and a half long. They will carry two or three beams upon their back at once. They frequently come in the night and steal their salmon from their nets and eat them raw. They steal salmon? That's mean. Are they sure they're not bears? Maybe they are bears. Well, it also makes me think of Beowulf. 
Oh, you're right. It sounds a lot like Grendel. You know, they're all in the lodges and he comes in at night and steals one and takes it down to like a lair. You know, it sounds very reminiscent of that, which is interesting. Right, because there are a lot of themes and old folklore that run around the world. Right. I mean, they're kind of convergent evolution. You know, these ideas are the same, but they're not from the same place. Different cultures come to the same ideas from different places. Well, they're observing basically the same thing. They're observing human life going on. And also its struggle with nature. Right. So another explorer, Paul Kane, also spoke about this strange, frightening race of beings that the native Indians in this area were afraid of. And he wrote a book called Wanderings of an Artist Among the Indians of North America. Sign me up. I'm reading it. Where's my scholastic book order form? I'm checking the box. Well, it's on Google Books. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) So many things are, like, that we cite these, like, weird things that have been checked out from libraries, like, twice in the history of their existence. Well, it was published in 1859. So he's talking about these mountains in the Washington area, and he says, These mountains have never been visited by either whites or Indians. The later assert that it is inhabited by a race of beings of a different species, who are cannibals, and who they hold in great dread. Their superstitions are taken from a man they say went into the mountains with another and escaped the fate of his companion, who was eaten by the Skookums, our evil genii. I offered a considerable bribe to any Indian who would accompany me in its exploration, but could not find one hardy enough to venture there. Okay, you artist. Shush your mouth. You so did not do that. What man will venture with me into the mountain to find the Snookums? And paint them. Excuse me, excuse me, Harry. Will you please sit for a portrait, old boy? So if you go on to read in the book, he also describes other types of cannibals. These other cannibalistic creatures, including the Wendigo. And so, as we know, at this time, you know, you call anybody, anything you don't understand, or any kind of enemy would be like a savage or a cannibal or anything like that. So the idea of calling some kind of unknown creature a cannibal is not crazy. Well, it is crazy because a bear's not a cannibal if it eats a person. It's just a bear. Like he's saying, like it is, it's human. He's saying it's a human that eats other humans. That's the definition of a cannibal. So it is sort of interesting. You're right. He is saying that this is a human. Well, that was just some flaky artist. I think we're going to need a better authority. You're right. We need authority. We need authority on nature and wilderness and big animals. How about Teddy? Teddy bears? Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt. Yes. Of he, course. He and I are bull meese. I know you are. So he published a book called The Wilderness Hunter that chronicled some of his adventures in... The Wilderness. Where he... Hunted. Yes. You got it. Teddy didn't mince words. It was told to me by a grizzled, weather-beaten old mountain hunter named Bowman, who was born and passed all his life on the frontier. He must have believed what he said, for he could hardly repress a shudder. At certain points of the tales. So the story is about two trappers who were camping and had their camps tossed twice and then also saw giant footprints. Big feet. They saw big feet prints. So Teddy goes on to describe the story that was told to him by old chap Bowman. Stepping forward, he again shouted. As he did, so his eyes fell on the body of his friend, stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. Rushing toward it, the horrified trapper found that the body was still warm, but that the neck was broken. Oh, no. While there were four great fang dogs in the throat. 
The footprints of the unknown beast creature printed deep in the soft soil, and they told the whole story. Bauman, utterly unnerved and believing that the creature with which he had had to deal was something either half-human or half-devil, some great goblin beast. A goblin beast? Abandoned everything but his rifle and struck off a speed down the past, not halting until he reached the beaver meadows, where the hobbled ponies were still grazing. Mounting, he rode onwards in the night, until far beyond the reach of pursuit. There are many other states in the United States that have reported giant creatures that roam the mountain wilderness. However, I do not have enough verified information to fully go into that at present time. Anyway, that would be another book. Setting up a sequel. That's how Teddy rolls. So it's such a great story. It's from Teddy Roosevelt. It's from Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt was also convinced that Houdini was actually magic. He wasn't? He was, but most people didn't notice. Oh, okay. So yes, that is the account of the Bigfoot from the Great Bull Moose's Mouth. But this time, they still don't have like a unified name for this creature. No, it's It is a great... Goblin beast! Yeah. And so the term Sasquatch comes into kind of our general populace use in the 1920s. So it's a derivative of the word Sasuets, which is a Hakumelum word, which is a small group of Native Americans on the border between British Columbia and Washington. And it can be translated as like wild man or hairy man. By the 1920s, J.W. Burns, who was a guy that worked with Native Americans, or I guess if it was in Canada, they're First Nations, which I think is the better term. I do too. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. that. And he compiled various local legends for a series in a Canadian magazine. And that's where he popularized the term Sasquatch. So the first article was an April 1st issue of McLean's in 1929. And it was called Introducing British Columbia's Hairy Giants. You know, in Texas, in Austin specifically, we still have a hairy man. We have Hairy Man Road and things of that nature. Yes, there's a hairy man that lurks around. Apparently. There's even a hairy man 5K. And a festival. (laughs) And they don't mean hipsters. Ha ha. So there are a bunch of wonderful stories. In these articles, and they'll be posted online, I'll read a little excerpt from one. Reports from time to time, covering a period of many years, have come from the hinterlands of the province that hairy giants had been occasionally seen by Indian and white trappers in the mountain vastness, far from the pathway of civilization. These reports, however, were always vague and indefinite, for the reason that no person could be found, or at least nobody came forward, with the information that they had obtained a close-up view of these strange creatures. Persistent rumors led the writer to make diligent inquiries among old Indians. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me. I'm here from the paper, sir. Could you care to make a statement? You care to make a statement, sir? Sir, put down your peace pipe, sir. Going in the sweat lodge. (laughs) Sir, have any peyote, sir? Peace pipe, sir. (laughs) Try to use as many, like, stereotypes as possible. (laughs) The question relating to the subject was always, or nearly always, evaded with the tried excuse. The... (laughs) The white man don't believe. He make joke of the Indian. Sir, I'd never make a joke of the Indian, sir. I'd never do such a thing, sir. What makes the red man red, sir? I can say that I'm Native American. Don't write me letters. And we also think it's ridiculous. 
One person said, I thought I heard a noise, something like a grunt nearby. Looking in the direction in which it came, I was startled to see what I took at first sight to be a huge bear crouched upon a boulder 20 or 30 feet away. I raised my rifle to shoot it, but as I did, the creature stood up and let out a piercing yell. It was a man, a giant, no less than six and one half feet in height and covered with hair. He was in rage and jumped from the boulder to the ground. I fled, but not before I felt his breath upon my cheek. I bet they have terrible breath. They have to. It's only six and a half feet tall. I mean, that's person-sized. Ish. There are people who are six and a half feet tall. It's a tall person. We're just short. <laughs> I'm average. I'm not. <laughs> so, so, you know, one ecologist, Robert Pyle, writes, and of course, most cultures have human-like giants. I mean, we've talked about many on the episodes in the past and wild man stories. We did a kind of whole episode on that. And a need for these, like, larger-than-life creatures. So it's not that odd to find these tales throughout different cultures in North America. Right, and actually NASA has a Bigfoot tracking program. What? Yeah, I found it the other day. I'm assuming that this had to be, like, a training exercise or something, but they have a, like, Sasquatch. Like, watch this. I don't know if that's what it's called, but it should be. Or Sasquatches or aliens. And they're keeping tabs on them? Of course. Well, that only makes sense. It's very men in black. But they have like little points where all sightings have been reported and they keep track of everything. Sounds cool. But yes, those are your tax dollars at work. Okay, so now we move into one of my favorite accounts. This is kind of the... This is kind of the Sasquatch coming out party? Sure. Yeah, it is. So this is Ape Canyon. The account was originally reported using the words mountain devils to describe what was seen, which is super fun. Yeah, it was retconned into being a Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. This comes from an account. It was a little 20-something page book called I Fought Ape Men at St. Helens. That sounds epic. It, it is. And it was by Fred Beck. And so he was one of the men there. Yes. There was a violent encounter in 1924. Between a group of miners and a group of ape men. Mountain devils. Charlton Heston was not there. Disappointed. I know. So uh, allegedly this took place on July 16th of 1924. And it was featured in an issue of the Oregonian. Fred Beck, one of the miners who wrote our book, this fellow, claims that he shot and possibly killed at least one of the mountain devils. That would piss a mountain devil off. Mm-hmm. But... They had been attacking the cabin, so he felt justified in doing so. They committed a full-scale assault, throwing rocks, trying to break in, etc. And then he put out the book in 1967. In the book in 1967, the old hippie, because that must be what he is at this point, claims that these are mystical beings from another dimension. Oh, well, of course. And he explains that he's had more psychic phenomena and visions... Before and since, and the ape men are only a small part of it. But let's go back. Let's look at what he says about 1924. Oh, please, please. We walked to the spring, and Hank yelled and raised his rifle at that instant. I saw it. It was a hairy creature, and it was about a hundred years Is he a Shakespearean away. actor? He is zinned out on some high-quality beauty. He's found his inner peace. He leads guided meditations. What else could he sound like? It was a hairy creature, 
and he was about a hundred yards away, on the other side of a little canyon, standing by a pine tree. It dodged behind the tree and poked its head out from the side of the tree. And at the same time, Hank shot. So after Hank shoots at the thing that sticks its head out from behind the tree. Bad idea. Yee-hoo! I think I got it, Hank says. And his friend says, oh dear, you shouldn't have done that. And they go back to their cabin. And they're all sitting around and they're smoking pipes at night. And then we heard a great commotion outside. It sounded like a great number of feet trampling and rattling over a pile of unused shakes. We grabbed our guns. Hank squinted through the space left by the chinking. By the actual count, we only saw three creatures together at one time. But it sounded like there were many more. And then he claims that one of the creatures reached in, like through the cabin window, and grabbed an axe. Oh, shit. And tried to wield it. Which, like, it would be impressive if a person at night in the dark reached in through a window and happened to grab an axe and use it against them. Ah, but these are interdimensional beings. Right, they'd have to be. And then he also claims that his good buddy Hank sang them a song to try to make them go away. How'd that go over? Didn't work. I bet he had a terrible singing voice. I think that was the thought. Maybe if I sing badly enough, they'll just leave. Is that your thought? (laughs) If I sing loudly enough, they'll just stop. And then he does claim that he shot one as it was standing on a cliff and it fell about 80 feet off the cliff into like a gorge below or something. But he came back with reporters later. They could not find the body of said downed Sasquatch. He goes on to say that no one will ever capture one. No one will ever kill one. Why does he say that? Because they are interdimensional beings. Oh, of course. And one does not simply kill an interdimensional being. He says all this very ominously, of course, about mid-pamphlet. He also claims to be a medium and a clairvoyant as well as a spiritual leader. And he says that there have been many more attacks and sightings in the area. But he begins to go on to describe some of his other spiritual experiences. Oh, fun. Oh, yes. This is a choice sample. In 1922, we found the location of our mind. A spiritual being. A large Indian dressed in buckskin. Like in Wayne's world? In Wayne's world. Charlton Heston was not there. Appeared and talked to us. He was the picture of stateliness itself. He never told us his name. But we always called him the Great Spirit. His name was Greg. <laughs> he does not say that. No, he doesn't. But I think it would be amazing. Was, hey, watch. I'm going to tease white man. Here, hold my iPhone. Take a picture. <laughs> Greg, stop it. Okay, okay. But we doubted Greg. And the magical arrow that we had been following changed directions. Yes, we had been following a magical arrow. (laughs) A magical arrow. Before we met Greg. And it was leading them to the gold. Yes. Of course. Okay. But they doubted Greg. Don't doubt Greg. No. And so the arrow changes directions. We saw the image of a large door open. A big Indian appeared in front of it. He spoke. Because you have cursed the spirit leading you, you will be shown where there is gold. But it is not given to you. Oh, you piss Greg off. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, Greg is the pinnacle of spiritual evolution. Well, yeah, definitely. He's on a higher plane than we are. Of course, with the angels and their crystals. Absolutely. Now, obviously, again, the hairy ape men that tried to kill 
sweet old Fred and Hank. Well, they tried to kill them first. Well, they didn't know what they were, and they just shoot at things because they're miners, and that's what miners do. Not an excuse. Yeehaw! Nope. <laughs> okay. So, the Sasquatch, according to Fred, our spiritual leader. That's, that's actually true. <laughs> yes. Fred is actually our spiritual leader. Says that the Sasquatch are from a lower plane. When the condition and vibration is at a certain frequency, they can easily, for a time, appear in a very solid body. They are not animal spirits, but they also lack the intelligence of human consciousness. When reading of evolution, we have read many times conjecture about the missing link between man and anthropoid ape. The snowmen are a missing link in consciousness, neither animal nor human. They are very close to our dimension, and yet part of a lower one. Could they be the missing link man has so long been searching for? The missing link of the soul. Right, and this he's like talking about like the consciousness missing link. Ooh. Oh, pass it. <laughs> pass oh, it, Greg. Fred. Fred. Greg. You want Greg's? Greg's I don't think you can handle shit. Greg's. Greg's got the good shit. Pass it, bud. I can handle it. It's the only way I'm handling it. <laughs> so that's a fantastic story. Yes, it is. Absolutely ridiculous. And Greg, if you're out there. Call the Justice Story hotline on your iPhone. Please, God. So in October of 1958 is really when the Bigfoot craze kicks off in the U.S. Does it kick up its big feet? Sure does. <laughs> Okay. This is where we get the term Bigfoot from. Which is so unfortunate, and I'll tell you why later. So Gerald Crew was working on like a logging crew. Yeah. And he found a large set of footprints at a site in California. Mm. And they kept finding these. And eventually they made plaster cast of them. And re- it was reported in the papers in the Humboldt Times. And later was picked up by the Associated Press. And this went national. Everyone was excited about these huge, big feet prints Mm. that they were finding. And the term was coined Bigfoot. So what were they really just, do we have this much evidence? Like, are there great plaster casts of these? Did he collect a ton of evidence? Oh, yeah, there are plaster casts of it. But the thing is, the footprints were just a big hoax. They were just a story. Yeah. So after. Why would he do that? Well, it wasn't Um, him. So after the death of Ray Wallace, the brother of a man in charge of the construction site, his family stepped forward and said he was responsible. His son, Michael, put it, Ray L. Wallace was Bigfoot. The reality is Bigfoot just died. Well, they killed all the fun and Bigfoot. They don't like fun. They don't like fun. And so the craze starts. People start putting the idea as a Bigfoot Sasquatch together. And then in 1967, you have the ever so classic Patterson Gimlin film. Okay. Real evidence. Let's talk about it. Okay. Okay. I know people have really strong feelings on this one way or the other. Me too. You know that? I have strong feelings about it. (laughs) Oh, you're one of the people. Sorry if I make you sad. First point. What year did it come out? 1967. What else came out in 1967? Uh, The Amazing Pamphlet by Fred and Greg. Yes. Uh, It was taken in Humboldt County in California. Where Bigfoot was seen? Yes. At Bluff Creek? Yes, it was. So we've already got some kind of suspicious stuff going on. 
are, it all makes sense. Why would the year make sense? Because the vibrations and the frequencies. They were just right. Like he up, fixed man. it. He just fixed it right. Okay. The moon and the stars and the age yes. of Aquarius. And all that hair everywhere. That's what the musical is actually about. Hair. What this is, is 59.5 seconds of film. Interestingly, it is the last 59.5 seconds of film on the reel. Convenient. Or amazing, faded. The vibrations just lined up, man. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. It was fate. The great spirit Greg came to me. And he said, here, take this arrow. Go to Bigfoot because you did not mock me. Except that your friend here is wearing a Native American wig. Wait, what? Oh, yes. Okay, so Patterson and Gimlin were filming what they termed a docudrama. Ooh. And Patterson was playing the part of the cowboy, and his friend Bob Gimlin... A white dude. ...was playing the part of a Native American man and donning a wig and going shirtless and things. Did he have red face on? I really don't know. I, I, I don't want to know that. They were filming this docudrama in which a cowboy and his Indian buddy... BFFs. They're super best friends, and they are led to a magical mountain. Okay. Where they encounter Bigfoot. Okay. They rent all this film equipment to make this movie, and if they don't have a Bigfoot, they're really in trouble, because the whole thing is about them going to find Bigfoot, and they were actually going to intersperse flashback scenes to the 1924 events of Ape Canyon. Really? Yes. So he had obviously read the pamphlet. He knew all about Greg. Okay. So they didn't have someone there ready to play Bigfoot. They just hoped he would make an appearance. Right. They assumed he would be cooperative. Of course. Or she. Let's not be uh, true. True. Sexist. Some people say it has breasts. It does. If you want like it it I say it has rubber and fur, but whatever. <laughs> it has saggy rubber and fur in the right places for people to make that conclusion. So Patterson was dying with cancer at the time. And I think that he had kind of decided to cash all his chips in and do this thing that he'd always dreamed about doing. He actually wrote a book in 1966 called Do Us Abominable Snowmen Exist? And he had drawings and maps and things and like... Let me guess. What was his conclusion? They must. Of course. We just need proof. If there was proof, then everyone would just get on board. If only there was proof. Like a film. Like 59.5 seconds of film. So they were out. They were filming this docudrama. I've seen reports that he was in dire straits financially and they were threatening to repossess this camera that he had rented and like he was wanted on larceny because he had not returned it on time and all this stuff. I don't know if any of that's true. I can't find anything to really back that up, but there's there's a good circulation of rumor mill stuff about it. He also tried to copyright the term Bigfoot in 1967. Well, that's not suspicious. It may have been after. I don't know. He talked about seeing Bigfoot a bunch. However, Gimlin only made like three appearances on radio until 2005. And in 2005, he entered the Bigfoot speaking circuit. He was like, time to retire. All right, all right, all right. Let's get in the RV. We're going to go talk about Bigfoot. Where's my cowboy hat? Where the hell's my cowboy? I can't talk about Bigfoot without my cowboy hat. He can't. It's true. I watched footage. So... They were filming the docudrama, accidentally got this Bigfoot footage. This it is the classic footage you have seen of Bigfoot. It's grainy. It's shaky. There's this tall, furry thing that's walking along a creek bed. Yes, that has breast. 
And it has been analyzed. When I tell you it has been analyzed, it has been analyzed to death. The amount of time we wasted watching videos of people analyzing it. And like, we'll never have back. No, and like, and we did that for you, listeners. We did. <laughs> so you don't have to. We did. We watched it all. As someone that knows a little bit about anatomy, just <laughs> a little, their anatomy analysis is bullshit. On a lot of those analysis, it's true. And they're like, "Look at the musculature. Look here. Look, you can't get this in a fake suit. You just can't." Except it's extraordinarily fuzzy, and there's no detail. There's no detail. Also, I want to say it's something i've not seen talked about i know other people have noticed it and i don't know what's like put it to bed and why you don't see the question raised more often but it looks to me like the creatures feet have white soles i know it really does i'm like he just has white foot pads i'm sure that's all it is but why is the face not toned more similarly to the skin good question i don't know i don't know that much about anything but at all at all but they look like they're wearing shoes to me. So, right, you can go and watch these videos, and there's just like this thorough, in-depth analysis of this extremely grainy footage. But, you know, everyone that is a skeptic of the video says the obvious. It's a dude in a monkey suit. Right, because they have been able to verify that it was not added post-filming. They've been able to say whatever was there actually walked in front of the camera. I believe that. I do, too. And I believe that there may be a dude who's in the suit that is not Patterson or Gimlin. You believe? He's come forward. I kind of believe him. Oh, I believe him. His name's Bob Hieronymus, like Bosch. And he says that he was Bigfoot in the 1967 Patterson-Gimlin film. And he's taking a lie detector test on On TV. On TV, so it must be true. It must be true. Because we know polygraphs are... Irrefutable. 100% accurate. 100% accurate on TV. We know he at least believed he was Bigfoot. <laughs> Which, if he was not in the film, is very interesting in and of itself. Very true. But he's this old cowpoke who's like 6'7", and he had done some stand-in body double stuff in Hollywood and apparently had connections to a Hollywood makeup artist, or at least a costumer. And that man's name was Philip Morris, and he made several of these monkey suits that he sold for a couple of thousand dollars each in like nineteen in the 1960s. At one point, he had said something about the guy who did Planet of the Apes had done it, but he kind of like let that go. I don't know if he knew the makeup guy well. He was probably like, yeah, it looked like it. But there was a book written by a man named Greg Long that explored this idea. And interestingly, people will talk about the odd gait of the creature. And they're like, no human being could ever walk this way. I want you to pretend it's a cowboy. I want you to pretend that Patty, as the figure in the Patterson-Gimlin film, has come to be known. I want you to pretend that's a cowboy. Right. He looks like he's got this kind of bow-legged gait. Right. And also, Bob Hieronymus says that he was in a car accident, which gave him that peculiar gait. And there's some dispute about the dates on that, but whatever. He says he did it. The guy, Philip Morris, came forward and showed an example of the monkey suit. And they talked to this fellow named Greg Long. Now, Patterson-Gimlin estate maintains that they are lying, lying, lying. They had nothing to do with it. Blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, they're making bank off this video. Yeah, they really are. Like in that video of the lie detector 
experiment with Bob Hieronymus. Which had to be like a Fox special from the 90s. It's so bad. I would bet money that it is. I'd say 2003. But um, they did those specials. They used to like play before X-Files. Okay. They say that they, Patterson Estate, because he died in 1972, but they wanted $10,000 for the footage. If they wanted to air the footage on the program. And then once they told him that they were talking to Bob Hieronymus, they said, never mind, not even for $10,000. Sketchy. All of it's pretty sketchy. The fact that they were filming a movie in which Indian and Cowboy encounter Bigfoot and had no plans for a Bigfoot. Nope, just he'd show up. I mean, also, there are videos overlaying Bob Hieronymus's gate with the patterson Gimlet footage, and it's the exact same gate. Unless he's been, like, sitting around practicing it. Which, what does he get out of it? Which, well, I'm sure he gets paid for his appearances. Maybe. But, but what's that, like, one Fox special? Like, no Bigfoot conference is going to have him. No, no, they're not. And they, everybody hates him. Everybody in the Bigfoot community thinks he's a horrible person. Why would you do this to poor, poor Patterson Gimlin? He was just a sweet cowpoke. But I, I kind of believe Bob. I, I really do. And I... I see things in the footage that I'm skeptical of. I wish I liked fun more. Maybe you hate if, fun. I hate fun. Maybe if Greg would come visit and talk to me a little bit about it, I would be willing to believe. If Greg would vouch for Patty, I'd be on board. We're waiting on you, Greg. Balls in your court. Balls in your court, Greg. So as we wait for Greg, the great spirit, to show up. And vouch for the Patterson-Gimlin footage. We can move through time, and as you know, if you've ever mm, put TV on or anything, <laughs> there are so many you know, like Bigfoot shows and specials and tracking down Bigfoot and hunting Bigfoot. Killing Bigfoot! It's so disturbing to me. I love that commercial for Killing Bigfoot. I watched like five minutes of Destination America the other day, and I saw it like 12 times. It's amazing. These people are so impassioned in their arguments about whether or not one should kill Bigfoot. Should we kill Bigfoot? We can! Hell yes, we can. Because we live in Texas, and it is perfectly legal to kill Bigfoot in Texas. That is fact. If Bigfoot did exist and wasn't human, then it would be legal to kill him. Bigfoot would be a non-protected wild animal. L. David Sinclair with Texas Parks and Wildlife Department tells State Impact Texas. Thanks, Texas. Let's go hunting. We're going to need stuff. Like a monkey suit? Yeah. (laughs) And an old cow poke. So speaking of needing a monkey suit, in 2008, Rick Dreyer and Matthew Witten claimed to have solved the problem of there being no Bigfoot body. They posted a video on YouTube of this large creature that was frozen in ice. It was nearly eight feet tall and weighing over 500 pounds. This was covered by CNN, (laughs) Fox BBC News, and the pair received 50 grand from Searching for Bigfoot Incorporated as a measure of good faith. However, whenever the Searching for Bigfoot Incorporated people received the body arrived in a block of ice, they thawed it and examined it and found that it was made of rubber feet, fake hair, and a hollow head. (laughs) And they later admitted that it was a hoax. What did they get to keep the money? I don't know. I want them to have. I want that to be the best ever, like, dude, you know what you should do. Like, I want that to be the best end result ever. So while a lot of the people researching Bigfoot are amateurs, one person, Dr. Grover Krantz, 
no. prior to his death was a huge supporter of the idea of Bigfoot. Hold on. I just want to say here that if you name your child Grover Krantz, he's going to be an academic who tries to make a field like Bigfoot research credible. And he was actually a very credible academic. He was an anthropologist. He did his doctoral dissertation on the origins of man at the University of Minnesota. He was even involved in the Kenwick Man controversy. Super interesting story. There is an episode of Undone about it. Highly recommend. He did his research on development of stone tools, Neanderthal taxonomy, and culture. And he actually was originally skeptical of the Patterson-Gimlin film and has been quoted in papers saying, it looked to me like someone wearing a gorilla suit. It looked to me like that, too. He I later, could be an expert. He later changed his mind, though, you know, after thorough analysis. I think Greg spoke to him. But through all of his knowledge about paleoanthropology, he felt that Bigfoot sightings were due to a small pocket of surviving gigantopithecines is that a real thing it is okay it is so he identified them along the like evolutionary tree i guess and he says this is bigfoot yes and so these were extremely large ape-like creatures that had gone extinct about three hundred thousand years ago in eastern asia okay so land bridge right they must have come over on a land bridge and are they the darker cousins of the yeti maybe so maybe so and they would have adapted to be darker than their white counterparts in the mountains of nepal etc because of environmental conditions maybe or maybe they're like the snow hair and only change it winter or something maybe so maybe they just stopped in a costco and got some hair dye who knows just for bigfoot No one can tell, no one can tell, we're just for Sasquatch Joe. So, at the time, at the time he proposed this, people thought that the gigantopithecines were related to early homonyms. This was related to like molar evidence, and now people think that's more related to convergent evolution. So, things taking the same shape, but through different paths to solve the same problem. So now it's more thought that they're closely related to orangutans. Well, everyone knows that orangutans are the smartest. Are they? Well, in Planet of the Apes. Oh, you're right. They're the scientists. So he tried to formally classify Bigfoot as a gigantopithecus black eye using footprint casts as the holotype. Not those. Not the Humboldt. the evidence. Not the Humboldt feet, though. No. Other feet. Other feet, including one called Cripplefoot, which he felt was a Bigfoot that had club feet. And I cannot imagine that creature living to adulthood. And so he also proposed ideas that this could be related to Australopithecus, Africanus, and Neanderthals. And so he felt that this might be one of the missing links, just as Fred thought. Oh, well, I'm glad Fred and this actual um, Grover. Grover and Fred. Grover and Fred can agree on something. I think Greg came to Grover in a vision, and this is what started all of this. He went to UC Berkeley to give a talk one time. Who knows? Maybe they met on Hate Ashbury. I don't know. But the idea of Bigfoot as a missing link is a huge topic of discussion. It gives it some air of credibility, I guess. Like, takes it into science. Oh, we need this to prove things and stuff. 
kill one. Texas, we're talking to you. This is on you, Texas. Yeah, because it is illegal to shoot Bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest. Well, in some counties and things, they have protective statutes. That's true. So the idea of a missing link is one that has been around for over a century. And to talk about the missing link, we have to talk about what's a missing link to. Okay. Which would be the evolution of man. Oh, well, that seems very important. So talk about evolution. We have to talk about Darwin. 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 I love Darwin. Darwin's amazing. He's all over the Psychical Research Society. Really? Oh, he's not in it, but they write about him continually. Like, they are very into Darwin. And they start kind of because of Darwin. So this is one of my favorite high school memories. I don't have a lot of favorite high school memories. I hated high school. When I was taking biology, one of our bonus questions on a test was, who is Charles Darwin? And this kid in my class wrote that Charles Darwin took beagles onto a ship to see if they would evolve if he brought them to the Finch Islands where the process seemed faster than normal. That's pretty accurate. He took beagles on a ship. What do you think the beagles would evolve into? (laughs) Wolves. Reverse evolution. What? No, wolves are better. Wolves are unequivocally better than beetle. Beagle. No, they would turn back into wolves. They would fly. Flying beagles. <laughs> they would get finch wings. So my teacher, who was amazing, gave him full credit and <laughs> said that that was the best essay she'd ever read. Most likely true as well. And it stuck with me because I thought that like to get that many of the details right... But to get that much wrong was impressive in and of itself. And I know the kid, there's no way he did it on purpose. It's like how much you learn by sleeping through class. It's exactly how much you learn by sleeping through class. But in reality, in 1835, 26-year-old Charles Darwin arrived at the Galapagos Islands off of Ecuador. And when he got there, he was a staunch creationist. Wait, what boat did he take? The Beagle. That's where the Beagles come in? Yes. (laughs) So when he got there, he pointed out that they were relatively new islands, only three million years old. And he said the natural history of these islands is eminently curious and well deserves attention. Most of the organic productions are aboriginal creations found nowhere else. So he noticed they'd been kind of surveying this area. That's what their five-year mission was. Like Star Trek? Do you think he followed the prime directive? No, he, he, <laughs> he ate a lot of Galapagos tortoises. <gasps> he would be so ashamed of himself if he were alive today. <laughs> well, he thought, and a lot of people did, thought the tortoises were brought over by other sailors and that they were not natural to the area. Oh, so they really bore no impact on the ecosystem of the area. Right. They were like, let's eat them. They're good eating. They're easy to kill. They're huge. They're slow. But he noticed that these creatures were like the other creatures from the main continent, but different. He thought that they might have started as accidental colonists to the island and diverged somewhere. So legend has it that, of course, he was on Galapagos Islands and he saw the finches and magically a eureka moment. I, I doubt that. I think he was high on tortoise and probably didn't notice until way later it's true i mean he didn't he noticed he noticed he had inklings when he was there of ideas of evolution but it was far far from a eureka moment it's very much just a story hmm this is curious is more what it was yeah it was like hmm that's interesting he later published in 1839 in his journal of researches that he became fascinated with the mystery of mysteries 
talking about the origin of new species, by talking to Nicholas Lawson, the vice governor of the islands. And they were sitting there, I think, probably eating tortoise, looking at the tortoise shells. And Lawson said that he could at once tell from which island any one was brought. How could he tell? Because the shells were different. The pattern was different. That's interesting. Yeah, because each... The interesting thing about the islands, and I won't go into in detail, and you, know, you could talk about this forever and ever, is that in each island that has very different ecosystems. And on the island, there are different ecosystems. And the thing is, these animals that came there, these accidental colonists, were able to have this divergent evolution. And they adapted over millennia. They adapted over millennia to their environment. So you'll have the same creature that changes in every little spot. So the classic example is Darwin's finches. And these finches have their beaks. All finches have beaks. The different beaks. That's the key. So each beak is specialized to do a different task. To get food. Because Birds need food. This is a scientific fact. That is fact. That Which is science. I know yes. to be true. Birds need food. Each finch that Darwin observed had a very specialized beak that performed a different task. And this was curious because he knew a finch to be a finch. Yeah, and he was like, maybe they're just like variations. Maybe they're all just completely different species. You know, not all from one single root right maybe these are different plants not branches on the same tree so he did not go oh well this is evolution duh eureka and he was very skeptical of this idea he had the thought he had the thought but he just didn't know and so he speculated that such facts would undermine the stability of species and that's important because in the creationist idea you have the set amount of species that are created by a creator, and they can have variations, but they all have this single type. So, forgive me here, I'm going to metaphor a little. So, in order to preserve this creationist understanding of animal diversity upon the planet Earth, we must imagine that God ordered them all from Amazon, and that they were delivered to Earth in total, like complete as... They are now. Yeah, he had Prime. It was like, uh, it took like six days. Well, he must have ordered it on a weekend. Yeah. Okay, so they come in from Prime, and he's like, perfect. I need not alter these. These are them forever. No species shall change. Done. I'm out. This is what happened? Yeah. Okay, so Darwin's like, it looks like to me these have been customized. Maybe. Maybe. Like, there's the classic writing in his notebook where he kind of draws out the idea of a tree of life. You know, very rudimentary. He's thinking. And he writes on it. He writes, I think. I think that there's something so powerful about his caution. In his notebooks, like in 1837, after his return, he wrote, like, one species does change into another. And then he also wrote in the notebook, cuidado. Watch out. Caution. Because he knew that this was such a crazy idea. He was revolutionary. Could you ever trust yourself to change things that much? Could, I mean, like, seriously, I'm asking you. No, no. I would think, oh, my God, I would need so much evidence. 
So he's undermining this idea that everything is as it is when God put it here. That is the bedrock of Western culture in his mind. He's struggling with this. Oh, he's very much struggling with it. He had a lot of help kind of starting to catalog these ideas from the Galapagos Islands, which he worked from. Like originally he collected a bunch of inches, but he kind of just threw them all in a box. Didn't write where they came from or anything like that. He ate tortoises and he threw a bunch of dead birds in a box and didn't label them. Yeah. We would have been friends. Probably so. <laughs> we would have been friends. So he got a lot of people to help him. One was like John Gold, who helped with the finches, like I said. And they actually had to go to his other shipmates, who had better collected the samples to figure out where the birds came from. I on don't the know. Islands. Charlie's got an idea. And he like, you know how he was about the birds and the box. And he just, look, we know you took care of your samples. Can we just come over there? I don't know what the idea is. It seems crazy. He's really worked up about it. Would you just, could we borrow some birds? Exactly. And his plant specimens were much better labeled because they had to be put in glass plates. Mm -hmm. And so he also had help from Hooker to do that as well, who's a famous botanist, has won like every award from the time. Hooker was one of the people that like had major doings with the Psychical Research Society. Yeah. I mean, this was the scientific elite of Britain. And so in 1844, he was confiding in a letter to a fellow naturalist. I'm almost convinced, quite contrary to opinion I started with, that species are not, in parentheses, it's like confessing a murder immutable. There's just so much humanity evident in his private writings. I don't think we get a view of scientists that provides us with that a lot. We see their polished work. And seeing his doubt and seeing his... His struggle, I'm going to use the word again because it seems right, is just so intensely interesting to me. Seeing the humanity in this scientist. Yeah, he wrote a lot. He, after the travels, he was very much a family man, stayed home, studied barnacles a lot. A lot. Like for 10 years. Like to where it almost drove him insane. And he spent 20 years collecting evidence to back his idea of natural selection. And it's so funny now because we've grown up in a society where we have access to this information for the most part. And it just seems so obvious. Right. So he published Origin of Species in 1859, and it is considered like a great work of logic. And he was kind of pushed into publishing it because another naturalist, Alfred Russell Wallace, kind of wrote to him with a very broad idea of evolution. He was like, I'm going to get scooped. We've got to publish. And that's what kind of pushed him. He had so much evidence that only 1% of his book is about the Galapagos Islands. Wow. Just as much as about New Zealand. Have you ever worked through that? Have you ever like read any portions of it? Oh, yeah. How is the writing? I think he's a great writer. I, I think he's a very transparent writer. He just, he lays his ideas out. It's very logical. And this work was considered just this great work of logic. And so what, Spock was like, Mwah! is that what happened? Sure. I just, I needed that moment of like imagining Leonard Nimoy and Darwin hanging out on the bridge. Greg is here too. <laughs> so it was wildly popular when it came out. It sold out its first press run of 1,250 copies. By the way, how much do you think those are worth? 1,250 bajillion dollars. <laughs> and within a year, there are 4,250 copies out in circulation. So, of course, people that support him applauded as a brilliant unifying breakthrough. 
His rivals called attention to all of the gaps in the evidence, which there were so many, so, so many, including the ideas of missing links. And of course, prominent clergymen and politicians all condemned the work for its far-reaching implications. I have to include this in 1864, Benjamin Disraeli, later Britain's prime minister, famously said about human beings evolving into earlier species, which was like barely mentioned in Origin of Species. Mm -hmm. He was not crossing that line. He was a very cautious man. He said, is man an ape or an angel? I, my lord, am on the side of the angels. I repudiate with indignation and abhorrence those newfangled theories. I don't think I've ever heard newfangled used in quite such an intimidating way. (laughs) So we don't want to let go of our angelic heritage. We don't want to believe that God made us just a little lower than the angels in his image. We don't want to let that go because it makes us so, so special. We have to be special. His scientific detractors pointed out all the holes in his theory. And man, were there some holes. But he readily acknowledged that. He very much did. One of the things that he was concerned about was the age of the Earth. Well, everyone knows that the Earth was created in 4004 B.C. at 9 a.m. Very true. Not true. So that's the kind of biblical idea. And then at the time, prominent scientists, and this was also supported by Charles Darwin's son, reported that the Earth was 100 million years old. That's pretty old. That's that's giving, I mean, that's a lot older than 4004 B.C. True, but it's not long enough for the ideas of evolution to occur. Oh, Okay. And so now we know the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. Bill? Bill? Billion. With a B. With a big B. Wow, we're a fart. Oh, oh, we're nothing. We're the last (laughs) second in the time. Oh, yes, for sure. At the time, they didn't have a clue about plate tectonics, which was not proven until the 1960s. How they explained all of these species on different continents that looked alike was there was just like a lot of land bridges. Maybe there was a swallow. Who carried the coconut? The African swallow or the European swallow? One can't say. Choose. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelled of elderberries. What'd you say? What? Your uncle was a monkey. True. So one thing that Darwin acknowledged was there was a very poor fossil record. He described the lack of transitional fossils, also known as missing links, as the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. And also, he described the idea of what we call now genetics. It was organisms resemble their parents. Wait, no, no, no. Darwin did all this shit without genetics. Oh, genetics, the term itself, was not coined until 1905. And when did Darwin publish? Origin of Species was out in 1859. Holy shit, this man is a genius. I mean, I know he's a genius, but like to think of him doing that without even basic genetics? Right, he just had this idea of a basis of heritable variations in populations. It's mind-blowing that he did this without the knowledge of even like Mendelian genetics. Well, and so at this time is when Mendelian genetics comes out. And so in the 1850s and 60s, you have this Austrian monk. I'm going to take to the peas today. Right, he's got some peas. He's got some peas. And he figures out these inheritable traits. Oh, look at the peas. They look like the mother and the father. They have pink flowers and white flowers. Is there pink flowers and the white flowers? I'm a monk in the hungry Austria area. Now, he didn't have a clue about the idea of, of DNA or 
chromosomes or anything like that, but he was able to figure out there's some kind of inheritable trait. And this is the same time that Origins of Species is coming out. I'm just going to draw a few squares in my notebook here right, and so, hide it from Zeus and Ronks. Yeah, and so Mendelian genetics is what you do when you do like a pundit square in science in high school. It's a big P, little P, big P, little P, little P, little P, big P, big P. Exactly. And so interestingly, he had a copy of Origin of Species. And it was actually full of notes. Full of notes. No one knows if he put it together. It's like maybe he figured it out. I mean, he never wrote it down, never told anybody. What do you mean no, no one ever knows if he put it together? Do you think that he did not know he was witnessing evolution? Right. No one knows if he put it all. He had the pieces. He had the two pieces in his hands. He discovered one. He was reading the other. So did Darwin know of his pundit squares? Not that I know of. So we have Mendel, who is writing about the peas, And we have Darwin, who remains very skeptical. And eventually they come together, and we have pretty well-founded ideas of heritability and eventual change within a set species. Right. Darwin somehow knew that the holes would be filled in in the future. He said light will be thrown on the origin of man and his history and talked about the future, which all of his hard won findings would be tested. So in 1871, he does publish Descent of Man. That sounds ominous. That's his study on human evolution. He'd been doing it for years, quote, with the determination not to publish, as I thought that I should thus only add to the prejudices against my views. Why was it published? Why did he do it? Because he believed it, I guess. Yeah, I think he was just like, screw it. <laughs> I don't know. Do you think he thought he was dying or something? Is he having a Patterson moment? You know, in it, he talks about the kind of out of Africa idea of evolution that everyone kind of, now if you have a basic science class that huh, teaches evolution... Then that you know, we kind of came out of Africa. That was not the general idea. No, that was basically, I don't want to say treason because it's not against any heresy. That's what it was. Well, a lot of people thought it could have come out of Asia, could have come out of Mesopotamia, out of the Mediterranean. And all the Bible scholars, of course, thought it was going to be somewhere near, you know, Jerusalem. Of course. But this... Moving it to Africa was sort of an unheard. So the it was there. The was, idea was there. Pangea was not a thing at this point either. Nineteen sixties. Oh my god! Without Pangea, without genetics, he's like. By the way, without any fossil record, barely anything. Oh, and by the way, being a staunch creationist. Oh yeah, he went in full creationist. But like, put he took all twenty that- years to convince himself. It would take me 20 years. I'm like, I'm being completely serious. It would take me 20 years, even if I had it all in front of me. At this point, there's just no way you're like, oh, well, obviously. When he wrote in 1871, it's often confidently been asserted that man's origins can never be known. But ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. It is those who know little and not those who know much who so positively assert that this or that problem will never be solved by science. And he further said that the future will decide if I have greatly overrated its importance on evolution. And so, of course, we kind of know the great impact he's had. But it's so interesting to look back and see the amazing gaps he has, all the missing links 
in his chain of evolution. So one biologist, Francisco Eleo, was asked about gaps in Darwin's knowledge, and he said, oh, that's easy. Darwin didn't know 99% of what we know. So that might sound bad, but the 1% he did know was the most important part. I'm going to go ahead and say in that 99%, some of the biggest missing links were Pangea and genetics. But I think they mean it more literally. Like, I think they're actually looking for, like, a fossil that would be something between man and pre-man. Right, the idea we have of missing link, you know, the kind of general popular idea in pop culture Mm -hmm. of a missing link. And so that term missing link is used a lot to refer to this kind of missed step. So you think of evolution, what do you think of? Um, Like a chain of events, like like that graphic you always see where they like put Homer Simpson at the end to be funny or whatever. It's like, ha ha, they're like leaning over again and playing on their phone. Yes, uh, but you have like little man and he gets bigger and then like at the end he has a spear. Yes, he's evolved to tool making. So that idea is completely bullshit. Right, because Stanley Kubrick told us there was a big monolith and it was put here and then all of a sudden monkeys started beating each other to death with bones. Right, sure. But that idea of this chain, this chain where there's like a missing link, we need this one little monkey guy, the little spot that's missing, let's come stand there, is this really pre-evolutionary concept. It's something that fits with Lamarckian evolution. What's Lamarckian evolution? It is one of my favorite (laughs) disproven scientific theories, and it's where we will ourselves to be better. So just humans? Everything. The giraffe wants to be better? The giraffe wants his neck to be longer. And by stretching and stretching for the higher leaves, he's stretching his neck. And then he passes that on, that trait, on to his children. Okay, so if this were true, because my great-grandmother spoke Spanish, I would be genetically inclined to learn Spanish or something like that? Like, Kind of, yeah. It's more like physical, but yeah, some people would claim mental parts too. Okay. So wait, so that's Lamarckian genetics. Lamarckian genetics is like, if you want it, you will get it. And then you will pass it on to your children because you wanted it so badly. It's somehow ingrained in your inner being. Right. Okay. So what does natural selection say? Like, why would natural selection say that a giraffe has a long neck? Oh, because the pre-giraffe like creatures had the ones with longer necks could reach the higher leaves, which gave them an evolutionary advantage. They were able to sustain themselves better. They were able to have more children. So every time one of these giraffe predecessors would have another baby, its Call neck would pre-raffs. be- pre-raffs. Sure. These pre-raffs would have a little longer neck, and over millennia, they would reach the neck height that they have now, which would give them an evolutionary advantage. Because- Giraffes who have longer necks have a better chance of survival and therefore become selected sexually by other mates, right? There's a well, sexual ab- selection. Well, they are able to have more sex because they are alive. Oh, I see. Yes. Be glad you're not a pre-raph. So back to our idea of a missing link. That term was not invented by Darwin. It was actually popularized in 1853 geological evidence of the antiquity of man that put the origins of man further back in time, beyond the glacial period. 
Wow. The author Lyle wrote that it remained a profound mystery how the huge gulf between man and beast could be bridged. And his vivid writing, you know, inspired Jules Verne's Journey to the Sun of the Earth, inspired Le Terre Avant le Deluge, which is the Earth Before the Flood, written by Louis Figuier in 1867, and inspired his second edition. His first edition was like the Garden of Eden, maybe some Nephilim in the background, I don't know. Throw a few Nephilim in there, spice it up. Spice it up. But now, in the second edition, included illustrations of savage men and women wearing animal skins and wielding stone axes. That's quite a change. But the thing about the idea of the missing link, just like we talked about a second ago, it's a pre-evolutionary idea. There is no one missing link. There are many. There are many. But that doesn't stop people from calling things the missing link. Oh, it's sticky as hell. It's a great term. And it's easy to understand if you look at that like picture. Mm-hmm. We so, found this one. Grover would approve. Bigfoot is this one. So at the time that Darwin was publishing, there really was not much evidence supporting any sort of Paleolithic man. Wait, we're missing that too? Oh, yeah. No fossil record. Okay. In 1891, the Java Man's discovered by Eugene Dubois, and he described it as a missing link. And it was about 700,000 a million years old, discovered in Java. Oh, I thought he just liked coffee. <laughs> and, uh-huh. 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 and in 1907, German scientists discovered the Hildeberg Man. Oh, and that's a Neanderthal. And they knew this was not a missing link. This was closer to humanity. And this was widely accepted as a truth to where Java Man, everyone's like, ah, it's just some weird ape you found. It's a, it's a deformed ape who somehow made it to adulthood and used tools. Shut up. But then, finally, December 18th, 1912, the newspapers around the world, headlines, missing link found, Darwin's theory proved. Thank God. Right? Thank Darwin. Whatever. Charles Dawson was an amateur archaeologist that stumbled across a skull. In, in his a, own backyard? No, in a gravel pit. Where was it? Like in Africa? Or? In the UK. Okay. The uh, cradle of civilization, obviously. Mm-hmm. 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 In the Piltdown Sussex. Fantastic. So in a gravel pit in Sussex, he finds what? Skull cap. Of a human? Missing link. Okay. This was not only this great discovery that was the missing link and proved Darwin's theory, but it also proved, as you said, England. England is the cradle of civilization. Of course. I mean, obviously, we have to go back further if we're going to be white people because we have to be more highly evolved. Of course. So the... British scientists loved it. Loved this idea. Fantastic, old boy. You've done it at last. So Charles Dawson frequently found fossils in the Sussex gravel pit and would pass them on to Sir Arthur Woodward at the Natural History Museum in London. At the time, it was the British Museum. So he's the curator. He's one of them. Okay. So one day, a worker brought him a piece of a skull. A human skull. And he's like, we should report this murder straight away. So he dug up fragments of the skull. The worker did? Well, the worker had found a few. And then Dawson. Dawson went and found the rest of it. Okay. And he also found bones and teeth of extinct British animals in the area, like elephants and rhinos and beavers. Wait, what? Were there really elephants and rhinos and beavers in Britain? Yeah. Okay. 
like Ice Age-ish ones? Maybe. Hairy ones? Hold your horses. Hold your prehistoric elephants. So he also found primitive stone tools in this ape-like jaw. And so Woodward, the curator, constructed this skull, which had the brain size of a modern human and a jaw similar to an ape. So when this came out, even though all the papers called it a missing link, there was still some skepticism. This very much fit everyone's confirmation bias of what they thought they would find. Right, like half human, half ape, with a big brain. Yes. But people noticed that that match between the jaw and the skull was not exactly perfect. And William King Gregory of the American Museum of Natural History studied this in September of 1913. And he's one of the people that really called it out as a fraud the most at this time. Wait, a fraud? I don't know. He didn't believe it. Right, but he may have just been like jealous that he didn't find it. Yeah, that they weren't found in America. America! He said, it has been suspected by some that geologically they are not old at all. It is most likely an Australian skull and a broken ape jaw, artificially fossilized and planted in the gravel bed to fool the scientist. Even though he said this... He eventually endorsed it. He endorsed it as being real. The missing link. Okay, so he's like, oh, it's just a human skull in the jaw of some monkey somewhere. Don't be silly. And then he's like, no, totally real. Got it. Yeah. People so were, he got on board. Yeah, people were signing up left and right. The guy that found the Hilderberg fossil, the first Neanderthal jaw fossil, thought it was real. He described it as the best evidence for an ape-like ancestor of modern humans. Darwin would say that humans and monkeys diverged like long, 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 long time ago. Yes, from a common ancestor, not a chump. (laughs) But it's almost like these guys are expecting to find like a half chump, half person. They are. And so there's still some questioning. And Woodward has created this idea that he thinks the skull looks like. Woodward being the curator who yes. actually did the reconstruction. Yes. And so they're, you know, presenting it among the geological and all the different science. Anthropological. And- groups. And they're like, maybe it would have teeth like this. And then the next year, they find teeth like that. Holy shit! They're geniuses or maybe psychics. Let's get the Psychical Research Society out there to check. So they found a canine tooth that was between an ape and a human and just fit just perfectly with how Woodward had predicted it. Woodward is just like Nostradamus. So with that, with that extra discovery. The tooth. The tooth. The tooth puts him over the top. And they also find more skull pieces and a molar. So they have a second one. Like all from the same skull? They all fit together? No, they, have a, they find another Piltdown Man too. Wow. So this is the most fruitful gravel pit in the history of the universe. It is so fruitful. They've got all these artifacts, all these different fossils from all sorts of Beavers and and elephants and rhinos. rhinos. All the shit. Oh, oh my God. It's the best little gravel pit one could imagine. Like in the home of Darwin, too. Like in the middle of England. Like Yes. This is amazing. And so with those new findings about the Piltdown Man, as he came to be known, he was kind of officially, especially in the UK, deemed the missing link. But the thing is, they started finding other fossils around the world. Really? In 1925, Raymond Dart finds what's known now as the Tong Child in South Africa. And he published in February 7th of 1925 in Nature, describing it as an extinct race of apes intermediate between living 
anthropoids, and man. So that is pretty soundly the missing link. Well, that's what Raymond Dart thinks. But immediately when the paper comes out, several British paleoanthropologists criticize the conclusions. Author Smith Woodward, sound familiar? Is the curator. Dismiss the Tong child as having little bearing on the issue of whether the direct ancestor of man are to be sought in Asia or Africa. Because this was that out of Africa, out of Asia idea was still being hotly debated. So author Keith, another famous paleoanthropologist at the time, said an examination of the cast will satisfy geologists that this claim is preposterous. So they're denying the Tong child's they're authenticity saying, yes. because they have the Peltdown Man and we pick it. And it doesn't fit. Right. It doesn't fit with the Piltdown Man. Oh my God, I'm seeing so many dangerous implications of this. Oh yeah, so it has human-like teeth. But they had, the Piltdown Man has like monkey-like teeth, kind of like between, intermediately between. And the Tong child also had a smaller brain. But we have a big brain with a monkey jaw, so clearly we got smarter and then our faces got prettier. Right. So it just doesn't fit. Well, maybe Africa had a separate tract of evolution. Maybe so. Some people actually thought that. That was an idea that uh, humanity came out of Africa and Asia at one time. So two completely like yes. different species. Oh my God, that's so terrible. No yeah, it wonder. Doesn't make sense either. No wonder people were horrible for so long. Well, it's like once you understand genetics, that can never happen. So a large number of anthropologists believe that our genus Homo had sp- split from the great apes as much as 30 million years ago. So they could not, they did not want to accept the idea that it had this small brain. And it also just did not fit with our Piltdown Man. Right. It had this big brain. So basically, like in very simple terms, it appealed to our vanity to believe that we became smart sooner. Like we lost other ape-like characteristics after the brain evolved. Right. That was kind of what they expected to find. They were very wrong. Funny how that happens. So this idea was kind of completely dismissed by British scientists. Another very important discovery was the Peking Man. Which, Peking Man? Yeah. He peaked? No, like Peking, oh. China. This was found by several people, one of them being Jean Talliard. And he is actually involved in the Piltdown Man discovery. Interesting. Yeah, so he was called in by Woodward and the cohort to come and examine the gravel site. This is before he had discovered the Peking Man. And he is actually the one that stumbled upon that canine tooth they found. Interesting. Peking Man is down, obviously, in China. What is he? Tell me about him. Well, at this time, again, smaller brain size. They felt like there's no way that this fits with Piltdown Man. They dismiss it. They dismiss Peking Man? They dismiss Peking Man as well. But the evidence is starting to kind of pile up. You got the Tong Child, you got Peking Man, you've got other discoveries. But man in Britain, Piltdown Man was the tops. Well, I mean, he's local. They're going to root for him. And just to show how awesome they thought he was, on July 23rd, 1938, a memorial stone was placed at the site of discovery. And Sir Arthur Keith... I mentioned earlier, as stated at the dedication, so long as man is interested in his long past history, in the vicissitudes which our early forerunners passed through and the varying fare which overtook them, the name of Charles Dawson is certain of remembrance. We do well to link his name to this picturesque corner of Sussex 
the scene of his discovery. And Charles Dawson is very linked with the Piltdown Man. And as anthropological evidence starts to pile up. He's going, oh shit. Well, he's dead. Oh shit. He's dead. Well, he would be. In 1949, staff from the Natural History Museum in Oxford start to investigate the Piltdown Man. And they do new fluoride dating that show the fossils are quite young, as in less than 500 years old. Shit! Oh no, that ruins everything! They realize that there was human-like wear patterns on the teeth that had been created by artificial filing down the teeth from an orangutan jaw. The skull pieces were unusually thickened, but quite recent, human skull. It had also been boiled and stained to match the color and antiquity of the piltdown gravels. It was fakeity faked faked. And remember how he found all those other mammal fossils? Yeah, the beavers and the elephants and the rhinos and the Britain. It's amazing. So they were real. Right. But they weren't from Britain. <laughs> Honey. They'd been also stained to match the skull and came from all over the world. It turned out that every single one of the 40-odd finds at Piltdown had been planted. Scientists called the fake extraordinarily skillful and the hoax so entirely unscrupulous and inexplicable as to find no parallel in the history of paleontological discovery. And this is coming after the dinosaur wars in the West, which we may do an episode on. And so also the teeth had had like tiny cavities where they had put little gravel pellets in and covered with dental putty to make them the weight of fossils. So on November 21st, 1953, headlines read, Peltdown man, not real. Oh, it's better than that. Missing link, still missing. That's pretty good. Fossil hoax makes monkey out of scientists. Oh, no. Puns. Puns. Bitter puns. So the thing about this huge hoax is that it set paleoanthropology back decades. It invited skepticism. Which is good. It's good to have skepticism, but people were not accepting things like the Java Man, which would later become, along with the Peking Man, known as Homo erectus. Mm, that's pretty key. Which is kind of the step-ish before Homo sapiens. Things like the Tong child, who is much more of a missing link, kind of is one of those stages between this primate relative of ours and man. Later would be in the family, Australopithecus. Okay. And that is, if I'm not mistaken, Lucy. We've seen Lucy. We have. It's one of the coolest things we've ever seen. We saw Lucy at the Houston Museum of Natural Sciences, and it was incredibly humbling to stand there before this ancient woman. It's amazing. And know that because this existed, I exist. It was one of the strangest, most profound experiences I've ever had as a living, breathing human on this planet. And if you ever have the chance to view this... It's in Ethiopia now. If you ever go to Ethiopia, please, please take the time to go see Lucy and tell Lucy that you love her. Do you love Lucy? I love Lucy. So Australopithecus, Lucy, who was discovered in the 70s. Pretty well known band, The Beatles. Have you heard, heard of them? them? I've heard, you of, heard them. of them. Okay. They had a song called Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and she was named after that song because the people who found her had good taste. I think it was playing when they actually found her, supposedly, you know. 
Whatever. Close enough. Probably a story. I don't, care. I don't care. I don't care. How complete is that skeleton before we move on? 40%. That's amazing. Yeah. Because how old is she? Two to three million years old. That genus of man is when we become like bipedal and start to use tools. So this is the earliest man, I guess. Like this it's is not a man yet. It's Australopithecus. <laughs> I don't want to parse with you, but like this is when we start to kind of mimic our current shape when we start to sort of look like what we look like today. This yes. is that moment when something on the plane stands up. Yes. Bah, bah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm not for setting anything, any branch of study, any field of inquiry back. And I want to know who's responsible for this bullshit. This English bullshit. Tell me. I know you know. Well. There's a list. There's a list. The list is extensively long. Picked the best candidates. In your opinion. In my opinion. Okay. One of them is Tellard. So Tellard de Chardin. Like I said, found the peaking man. Also found that canine tooth. That's a lot of finding. That's a lot of finding. The peaking man, genuine. Genuine thing. Where, where is it? Well. <laughs> oh, shit. That's a great question. Okay. We've seen casts of it. Okay. At the American Museum of Natural History. In New York. Because there are only casts of it. What? How do you misplace that? World War Two. Okay, fine. So it's somewhere with a Nazi goal. Yes. Except there weren't Nazis in China. Not many. Come <laughs> on. There were Nazis everywhere. They went to find the Orient, the old seat of man. And oh, they- you're right. <laughs> That's like a whole conspiracy theory in and of itself. Like it was supposed to be shipped to a U.S. base and then it got lost somewhere because it was going to go be kept in safekeeping by, you know, our trusted hands. And it was lost. And now they think it might be like buried under a parking lot or, you know, have been used for Chinese traditional medicine or there are a million theories. Oh, they found really important fossils in troves of bones used for Chinese traditional medicine. (laughs) I really doubt that Teilhard was associated with it. He was a Jesuit priest. Wow. He had nothing to gain from it. He was a Jesuit priest and he was out like researching things that would go toward the theory of evolution. The Catholic Church has no problem with evolution. Wow. And he was out of the country, China, uh, most of the time when all the other discoveries were found. And a lot of people think, and I agree, that he was used to give it credibility. You know, they were like, hey, boop, hey. Look over there. Don't step on that. Don't step on that thing right there. It could be important. It's a tooth. Oh, my God. It looks exactly like what I wanted. Did you ever notice those keys over there that belonged to Teresa Holbach? It's like they, they went, just came out of nowhere. It went all minotaurlike up in that gravel pit. So I think no. Mm-mm. What do you think? I think no. Next, next. I don't think the priest lied about English ape people. Bring me the next. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yes, it was him. It was absolutely him. There's no way it was anyone else. Please tell me why he did this. He faked fairies too. Come on, tell me, tell me. So he lived near Piltdown. He was. That's enough. Stop right there. <laughs> He was a member of the same archaeological society as Charles Dawson. Okay. He was a doctor, so had pretty decent knowledge about anatomy. Yeah, you say that. I mean, he wasn't a very good doctor, but whatever. No, he was a fine doctor. Uh-huh. And he was also a fossil collector. Okay. He, so he might have had the beaver on him, is what you're saying. May have had it on him. Had a beaver in his pocket. Just dropped that beaver. Or a tooth. Is that, or, a, bo- is that a bone in your pocket? Are you just happy to see me? 
I deduce, my dear man, that the suit of civilization is in England. And he also published the same year as the discovery of the Piltdown Man, The Lost World. What's The Lost World about? So, four explorers make their way through the Amazon jungle to a plateau where dinosaurs and cavemen are still alive. On a plateau in the Amazon. Yeah. Okay. And there are lots of allusions to ideas like the Piltdown Man, such as descriptions of the ape men that are closely linked with the ideas of like this orangutan jaw and the Piltdown Man. So what's the theory? He just did it to sell his book? Well, they speculate that his motive might be, be trying to go against this science that was always trying to disprove his beloved spiritualism. I buy it. I say probably not. I mean, like, personally... Yes, I want to think it was him. I want to think that he was out there doing this horrible thing to get back at the scientific establishment, which had continually challenged his beliefs. He's like, oh, you want to believe in evolution? Well, I want to believe in ghosties. And you say no, motherfuckers. So and fairies. He, so have some jawbones. It's like his Moriarty moment. <laughs> I mean, he was bound to have one eventually. You know he was going shit broke crazy. It was bound to happen. Piltdown Mount is the natural evolution of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's angst. Not of men. Oh no. So another character that is purported as a possible hoaxer is a man named Martin Hinton. And he was a volunteer at the Museum of Natural History who held a grudge against Sir Arthur Woodward. You know how that anthropological beef goes. Oh, it does not go well. So there are rumors about Hinton's involvement that took off in 1978 when a trunk belonging to him was discovered in the museum mm-hmm. containing fossil animal bones stained and deliberately cut to see how far the stain had penetrated. The stain looked like those used on the Piltdown remains. But no one can say whether Hinton was staining material to plant it or if he was conducting his own test and trying to prove the forgery himself. Okay, I like him as a Sherlock Holmes better. I think that's what he was. I know this can't be real. This doesn't add up. I'm looking at all the other evidence, and there's nothing to say. I think it's fake. What if it's fake? Holy shit, what if it's fake? How can I prove it? I think that's what it was. I, can't I think go he was trying to caught. prove it. Yeah. Cuidado, he says. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I like him as a as a hero. I'm sorry. I do, too. I think that's more likely. And now the more obvious of the people that it could be would be Charles Dawson. Hold on a minute. I really thought you were going to say Woodward. So Woodward was present for a lot of it, but and he is definitely on the list. I think if anything, he helped. Maybe they were in cahoots. Yes, but like he wasn't around when they found the original bones. Dawson was the only one there when they found Piltdown Man 2. Interesting. But you don't think Woodward could have tossed it out in the pit, kind of like they did for the priest? Well, let me give you some evidence. Oh, I love evidence. It's my favorite. So Dawson did die of septicemia in 1916. After this, no other Piltdown Man discoveries were found. He kind of had an unsavory local reputation. He obtained his home by falsely claiming to be buying it for the Sussex Archaeological Society. So he was a lawyer. He was a lawyer? He was a lawyer. Guilty. Done. Yeah. (laughs) So he was a lawyer and he wanted to be an anthropologist. He viewed himself as an Indiana Jones... Before he had the inspiration. Cute. He wrote in 1909 to Woodward, his buddy, I've been waiting for the big find, which never seems to come along. 
Okay, so in my mind, that's an invitation for Woodward to start this shit. Oh, it's just him daydreaming. Like, he wanted to be, like, elected to the Royal Society and... Have a monument put up for him. Yeah. In Sussex. names in the history books. We will never forget the name of Charles Dawson. All those things. Okay, so here's my scenario, because I'm going to play with character, even though I have no right to. Like, him saying, like, I'm just waiting for my one big find at the skies. I'm going, all right, fine, here you go, Chucky. I'm going to toss out some skull fragments, and you can just find them. And then... Well, he wasn't there. So this is, like, he's in London. He would have had to, in 1900s, travel out to Sussex to toss it. How far is that? That's not far. It's not, like, a walk out of the house. <laughs> he went walkabout. He went walkabout in London, because that's where the cradle of civilization is. And that's where the primitive practice actually originated. Oh, really? Yes. There's no such thing as an aborigine. That's just a lie made up by the propagandist. Well, more evidence. In 1906, Dawson acquired a human skull lacking a jaw from Mr. Burley of Nutley. Sometime between 1908 and 1912, Dawson asked his chemist friend, Samuel Woodhead, how one might treat a bone to make it look like a fossil. This is all bullshit because the names are like Nutley and Moorhead. Well, when analyzing Dawson's antiquarian collection, they determined that at least 38 of his specimens were fake. Ah, slander. Among them were the teeth of a reptile-human hybrid, coined perfectly, Plagiolax Dawsoni. (laughs) which was found in 1891 and whose teeth had been filed down in the same way as the teeth of the Piltdown Man. We're, look, okay, so the word of 2016, the dictionary it's word... It's 2017. Okay, well, we've got a whole year to make a new one, but the most recent word of the year is from the dictionary was post-fact. We live in a post-fact age. You can't help it that this man was just ahead of his time. I refuse to believe that Dawson had anything to do with this. Clearly, it was just a conspiracy by those trying to discredit him when he knew the truth. And he knew about our reptilian overlords and their connection to the greys. Whoa. Wrong podcast. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so it was totally Dawson. I'm just messing around. Like, there's no way after that much crap piles up that you don't look at the direction of the smell. Yeah, and one researcher wrote, Piltdown was not a one-off hoax. It was more the culmination of a life's work. (gasps) He's a professional liar. He was a lawyer. Okay. (laughs) So the thing about the Piltdown Man and its missing link status, it's missing link status for 40 years. That's not that long. That's a long time. I guess Paleoanthropology has been around for like 130 years. Okay, so yeah, that's significant. Fine, fine. You don't like fun. Science. You hate fun. But it completely just screwed up early paleoanthropology. And it really messed with our ideas of evolution very early on. And now it's widely known as a hoax. And it's often used by people like creationists as an example of Evolution all just being a big joke. And a conspiracy. And a hoax. A hoax. And interestingly enough, one of the biggest non-scientific events in the evolution of evolution... Oh, it's so meta. ...was the Scopes trial. I've heard of it! (laughs) 
It's all you've been reading about for a week. Oh my God, I'm a temporary expert to the highest degree. And within the Scopes trial. Within the scope of the Scopes trial? Yes. I was, I've been waiting for weeks to say that. I believe you. They used the Piltdown Man as their example of evolution and the missing link oh, between man pish. and ape. Oh, Tosh. They used more than that. Should we tell the good folks who are listening to us talk about something that we're not actually talking about what we're talking about? What are we talking about? I forgot. Okay, so the interesting thing about all this missing link stuff is the way that it gets across to the community outside of academia, the way it gets across to the general public. Right, because this is not an academic term. No. But you see it in headlines like every day. Yes, and so evolution was still a hot topic. All across the, all across the globe, really, and it was still hotly debated because, as we said, Darwin put this forward before he finished it. There is no finishing it, <laughs> but that's what people will always say. But this attitude sort of led to things like the Butler Bill. The Butler Bill about monkey butlers. Monkey butlers shall be illegal in all fifty. No, I think that's okay. I think monkey butlers are A-OK. I've seen Dunstan checks in. No, this should not be monkey butlers. That's how you get Planet of the Apes. <laughs> hmm, buggery. The Butler Act was passed in Tennessee in March of 1925, and it stated that it shall be unlawful for any teacher in any of the universities, normals, and all other public schools of the state which is supported in whole or part by public school funds of the state to teach any theory that denies the story of the divine creation as taught in the Bible and teach instead that man has descended from a lower order of animal. I bet that got some people up in arms. Well, interestingly enough, there was a similar bill in the Senate and they laughed it out. They're like, y'all are crazy. We're not passing that. And then this one was put forward in the House. And at first, it was not going through. And then the public caught wind of it. And they were like, holy shit, what are you thinking? Of course we have to ban teaching evolution, you crazy, crazy representatives. So they rushed and passed this real quick. And then that's where the ACLU steps in. They do. So the ACLU was a newish organization at the time. Definitely new-ish, for sure. So the ACLU was formed due to kind of perceived threats to civil liberties during the First World War. The Great War? The war to end all wars? That one? Yes, that one. That one right there that didn't end all wars. What? So they were worried about like the military draft, the Espionage Act, which made it illegal to obstruct recruitment of troops or cause military insubordination. And that's tantamount to just, like, going and tapping your roommate on the shoulder and be like, dude, what are you doing? Right. You could extrapolate it to just the smallest of things. And they also had bans on, like, disloyal or abusive statements about the American form of government, also known as free speech. Yeah, they did have those. Anything that embarrassed or hampered the government's conduction of war. Anything that embarrassed you. And it went even further than that. Schools started banning the teaching of German languages. Yeah, they were firing teachers left and right. Germans were losing jobs. They were stoning dachshunds. That's true. That's not just a story. So when I was a freshman, 
they banned the prayer before football games. And I was from a little rural town in northwest Louisiana, and this got some people pretty hot under the collar. And my health PE teacher told me that some student had complained to the Anti-Christian Liberties Union. The ACLU? Is there another ACLU? No, she was talking about the ACLU. She just extrapolated that that's what they actually did in practice, and she thought she was being funny. And had I known... Are you sure? Are you sure she didn't think that's what it was? I I don't don't know. know, But if I had known better, I would have been like, oh, she's trying to be snarky. But I didn't. And so until I was like a freshman in college, I thought that's what ACLU stood for. Hooray, Louisiana education system. I went to public school, y'all. So the ACLU came forward and offered to pay court costs for any Tennessee teacher who would serve as the defendant in a test case. Right, and they said that they thought it could be a friendly little test case and that we could probably keep whoever volunteers from losing their job. You know, we just need a just need a face casting call, really. And so this brings us to the little hamlet of Dayton, Tennessee. Now, Dayton was a hiccup on the map. It was a tiny little spot up in the mountains. It had kind of fallen on hard times in 1925 because one of the major employers in town of a commercial furnace had just closed. And the population had been cut in half over the last 60 years. And it was now down to less than 2,000. Wow, so it really is just a little town. Absolutely. A little dying town. They kind of had a weird set of circumstances to deal with anyway, because they were founded after the Civil War in Tennessee. And when the North, the War of Northern Aggression ended, and the Yankees carpetbaggers came down here to try and reconstruct our way of life, which we never asked them to do in the first place, they put in a railroad, those assholes. And Dayton was one of the places along the railroad. But... Because it happened after the Civil War and had these ties to the Yankee North, they never really felt like they fit in in the South. They weren't true Southerners. No, no, no. Carpetbaggers. Carpetbaggers. And interestingly enough, there was this fellow in town named George Wapoyer, and he never really felt like a true Southerner either. He had moved down from New York. He had a doctorate in in engineering. He had a doctorate in engineering. And he'd recently kind of rediscovered his faith after he had learned to reconcile his belief in evolution with the teachings of a modernist Methodist minister. And so when he saw the ACLU advertisement in the local paper, his Methodist bells started ringing. Well, so at this time, where would you put Methodist on the spectrum O? conservative liberal religions oh well in tennessee at this time h.l mencken said that methodist rated among the most left-wing of of the population that tells you a lot yes after seeing this ad rapelier runs down to fred robinson's drugstore and fred is the chair of the local school board and he's like hey do you see the paper fred's like of course i saw the paper he's like did you see this tiny little advertisement fred's like nah, miss that. And he's like, guess what, buddy? I think we're about to turn Dayton's fortunes around. Let's have a test case in Dayton. So you thought this would like bring press to Dayton? Yeah. I mean, because evolution is a hot topic issue. 
I mean, if you can imagine such a thing. So they're going to have a test case. Right. They've got the superintendent, Walter White. The man who knocks. Eisenberg, all the above. Yes. He's definitely there. He's played by Brian Cranston. Get it in your mind. Got it? Now give him a southern accent. Just freaked out, right? Okay, come back with me. Walter White, superintendent. He's like, well, I really support the law, but, you know, things are kind of crappy. And maybe we could do with some tourism. Let's see. Let's just try it. Let's see what we can do. So who do they find? What schmuck signs up to do this? John Thomas Scopes. Scopes. Heard of it? Yes. What do you know about the Scopes trial? The Scopes trial? The Scopes monkey trial, you mean? That's the one. So I know the Scopes monkey trial. I mean, I saw the movie. Inherit the Wind? Yes, it's fantastic. Well, he's Kate's in that. But yes, it is the it is the Scopes monkey trial. That is Yeah, there's like he's teaching evolution to these students and suddenly the cops come in and arrest him and then you have this huge trial in great like 1960s movie fashion. <laughs> there's a lot of dramatic pauses and things and shots of the crowd responding aghast, clutching their pearls. And there is the this great attorney who's going to stand up for Scopes. Then there's like this backwoods preacher attorney that's going to defend the Bible and all the religious blah. Right. Don't forget his sweetheart, the town pastor's daughter. Oh, right. Star-crossed lovers. It was like Footloose. Yes. <laughs> that's totally where they got the idea. They're like, what if it was a musical and they just wanted to dance? And the guy that plays Scopes is... For my dream of genie. So that is all patently mostly a story. Mostly just a story. Mostly just a story. But a fantastic film. The scene in the movie where Spencer Tracy is doing his big interrogation was done in one shot. Like one take. Ooh, go on YouTube. YouTube it, YouTube it. Pause, go watch it. So what really happens with Scopes? So they call Scopes down to the drugstore. So here's what Scope says about the moment that he realizes that he's been breaking the law of the land by teaching evolution. He says, Robinson brought me a chair, and the boy who worked as a soda jerk brought me a fountain drink. A little cocaine in there, I'm sure. Sure, yeah, yeah. definitely. Mm -hmm. John, we've been arguing, said Rappelier, and I said that nobody could teach biology without teaching evolution. That's right, I said. You've been teaching them this book? And he points to this hunter civic biology. I said, yes. And he said, then you're violating the law. Oh, my. Is this when the cops come in? There are no cops. Oh. One of the prosecuting attorneys like, we talked about it for a while, and John said he wouldn't mind being the defendant, and I said I wouldn't mind to prosecute him. And so Scopes was just like the perfect casting call. Oh, absolutely. Like this young, good-looking guy. 24. He really wasn't a science teacher, at least not a biology teacher. No, he was subbing for the normal general science teacher at the end of the year. In the brief time between when the law was passed in March and when this indictment was served in May, the normal general sciences teacher had a family and had ties to Dayton and wanted to stay in the area. So they didn't want to alienate him by having people know that he taught evolution or whatever. So they called in Scopes, and they were like, did you cover this chapter? He's like, I think so. He's like, if you can prove that I taught it, I guess I'll do it. 
I mean, I read from the book. Yes, literally. He was normally the football, an assistant football coach and taught physics and math. And he was just kind of a young guy. He went to church. He was he a Methodist. He did. He went to meet people. Now, he was said. He went because his mama told him to. No, his parents were actually atheist. Oh, really? Yes. And his dad was a socialist. Oh, no. Yes. Anything but. Uh, yeah, but he didn't ha- hold strong views about anything at this point in his life. He was just a young guy who really liked football. He actually said once, though, I don't know what a parlor socialist is, but I think I probably am one. And one of the defense attorneys actually said, had we sought to find a defendant to present the issue, we could not have improved upon the individual. He wore little horn room glasses and hats and was just very... Looked the intellectual. Yes, and very boyish and bookish just perfect but word gets out you know that wind we're inheriting yes it wafts the news throughout the land until it reaches the ears of the great commoner the great commoner yes the great commoner on may 13th in 1925 william jennings bryan comes out of a 30-year hiatus from actually practicing law and announces that he will go to Dayton and assist the prosecution, free of charge. The great commoner comes out of retirement. One last battle, he says. So William Jennings Bryan is a very important historical character at this time, not just because of the Scopes trial. Because he was the great commoner. He was a lifelong politician from Nebraska. And he was this kind of Presbyterian fundamentalist hybrid He was very much a blue dog Democrat. Yes, he was famous for his left-wing politics and his right-wing religion, if you can imagine such a thing. It was very common back then. He spent his early time arguing for progressive work reforms, the silver standard. You may remember this from those few weeks where, like, this is really boring in American history class. The lull, the great lull. lull. Yeah. The 1890s. It's all tariffs and gold standard. And then you get to bust some trust if you're really lucky and patient. Mm. Hey, if Teddy's there and his Sasquatch friend. And Greg. And Greg. Greg says, bust the trust. <laughs> like in his famous speech, the cross of gold that he gave at the Democratic National Convention, he said, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. And he's arguing for the silver standard at that point. That's why we get the cross of gold. Because he certainly had some gold to himself. Oh, yes. Make no bones about it. Came into a little bit of money when he got in on the ground floor of the Florida real estate market. In Miami. And and also doing the, the Chautauqua Lecture Circuit ad nauseum forever. Ran for president, lost three times, served as Secretary of State under Wilson, but he resigned because he thought the United States could stay out of the Great War. He believed the whole thing could be avoided. He was really into peace. He wanted peace for for everyone. If somebody could have gotten him the right cocktail of drugs, he would have been the best hippie ever. He was just very anti-military. And remember his position. Secretary of State? Yeah, that's the one. He eventually kind of drew a line in the sand where any kind of government intervention was okay, but we should not lose our religion over it. And he said, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain all the learning of all the schools and lose his faith in God? He was also instrumental in passage of four United States amendments 
direct election for senators, progressive federal income tax, prohibition, eh, well, can't win them all, and women's suffrage. Let's take it. So diversity was not something that people really got at this moment. We weren't about inclusion. We were still working that out. But Brian, even though he's like crazy fundamentalist, is all about the rights of the working man, no matter what color he is, and about women's rights, which is crazy. And he reaches out to attorneys who are both Catholic and Jewish. He does not see that as being any different. He thinks they're wrong, but he does know that they have good values. I mean, that's amazing at this time. This is the time the KKK was he around. He hated the KKK. They loved him. He hated them. Stop quoting me in the fiery cross. <sighs> no, you may not call your paper the cross of gold for the last time. In one of my favorite Brian quotes, we see how nuanced and complicated of a character he is. He says, tell me that Jefferson lacked reverence for religion, that he lacks reverence who believes that religion is unable to defend herself in the contest with error. He places a low estimate upon the strength of religion who thinks that the wisdom of God must be supplemented by the force of man's puny arm. Jefferson didn't believe that we needed the government to defend religion because religion could take care of itself. But he's saying, like, the freedom of religion is important and we can't force our religion on anyone else because then it's meaningless. It makes a bunch of hypocrites if they don't come to it on their own. Yeah, so he was very complex. I mean, he was not like it's portrayed in the movies or portrayed in kind of pop culture as this kind of like fundamentalist preacher lawyer. If anything, he was naive to a fault. And there's something kind of weirdly respectable about that. He had a huge amount of faith in mankind and their ability to do good and preserve good. And he had a almost religious fervor about the American ideals of democracy. And I think that these characters that have this level of complexity that don't just tow a party line have all but disappeared on the political landscape. Yeah, they don't have the soapbox like they used to. It's true. And one way that we see this is he was very much um, an agent, an agitator in getting these anti-evolution in schools laws and recommendations put in the law books. But he would at the same time be like, I don't think there should be a penalty. Because he knew that it really couldn't be enforced properly. It was like a token. It was a symbolic act. And actually, that's what Governor P of Tennessee said when he signed this, the Butler Act into law. It's like, this is a largely symbolic act. However, the Butler Act did have a penalty, and it was classified as a misdemeanor to teach evolution. Which he didn't agree with. And he also said the evolutionists have attempted to prove by circumstantial evidence that man is descended from brute. If they find a stray tooth in a gravel pit, they hold a conclave and fashion a creature such as they suppose the possessor of the tooth to have been. And they shout derisively at Moses. What is he talking about? What is the tooth reference? The tooth reference is most likely talking about the Nebraska man. I've never heard of the Nebraska man. So it it fits with the Piltdown Man. It is the other big screw-up in paleoanthropology. Whoopsie-daisy moment. They found this tooth in Nebraska. In a gravel pit? And oh, that's about the Piltdown Man. The gravel pit's about the Piltdown Man. Okay, so he's yes. just mishmashing all yes. of the craziness together. Yes, and the, the tooth 
they felt was like an early hominid from the Americas. And it turned out that Dawson had just filed down some old arrowheads and tossed them out in Nebraska along with some corn. I wouldn't put it past him <laughs> if he didn't have to have like the long boat ride <laughs> over. He snuck over in the dead of night on a skiff yeah, across the Atlantic. It turned out to be like the tooth of like a some like an antelope like creature. Was it old at least? Oh yeah, no, it was an old fossil. It just was not a human fossil. Okay. And so that and the Pilton man are still to this day used as evidence against evolution by creationists. Yes, I googled Scopes Peltdown Man to see where in the trial it was mentioned, and I came across like 17 creationist websites before I ever got to anything about the actual trial. They were just like, Scopes lied. They lied at the Scopes trial. But I mean, he opposed evolution because there wasn't proof. And he was right. There wasn't a lot of proof at this time. Even Darwin, just a few years earlier, was like, we don't have the proof yet, but I'm pretty sure this is right. So he's really, from that angle, not that far off. So one thing that I really admire about Brian is that he is doing this out in the open. He's kind of being a jerk and being like, everybody should be believe as I do. But that arrogance comes from that brand of Christianity And I don't know how avoidable it is. I grew up in a fundamentalist church. I can say that. I do admire him, however, for actually using the proper channel and speaking with members of legislatures, adhering to the proper course for the judicial process. He was going about things in the way that you are allowed to in the scope of the Constitution. Another interesting point he makes about Darwinism that I think is just fascinating is I object to the Darwinian theory because I fear we shall lose the consciousness of God's presence in our daily life. If we must accept the theory that through all the ages no spiritual force has touched the life of man and shaped the destiny of nations. But there's another objection. The Darwinian theory represents man as reaching his present perfection by the operation of the law of hate, the merciless law by which the strong crowd out and kill off the weak. So this is in direct response to the eugenics movement. Because at this time, prior to World War II... We didn't know how ugly that could get. I mean, there was definitely theories about it. I mean, he w- he knew. William Jennings Bryan knew. There were more than theories. Oh, I mean... There were laws passed that forced sterilization on the mentally retarded. You're right, you're right. And they were segregating the mentally handicapped or clinically insane into same-sex dormitories so that they didn't have the chance to reproduce. And But there were people, a lot of people, including P.T. Barnum, that saw eugenics as a positive. Oh, good. Now we know how to fix people. Right. Now we know how to fix us forever. We can be as great as we're meant to be, said Adolf Hitler. As we look back on Brian through the scope of history, he seems an odd character to us. and He seems to really have some ideological things out of place. It seems very out of step with our idea of what a progressive Democrat looks like today. And that's largely because he focused so much on majoritism. What's majoritism? It's the belief that our democracy being a representative republic means that the law of the land is based on the majority opinion. Interesting. And it really does not take into account the protection for individual rights. 
And this is something that was very popular at the time and widely believed to have been the intent of the founding fathers when they drafted the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So at the time, they thought the founding fathers were all for majoritism. And Brian especially. And that's how he justified the passage of acts like the Butler Bill. He said the majority of citizens in Tennessee did not want evolution being taught as evidenced through the votes in the House and the Senate. And they paid the teachers who were under contract with the states. And therefore, if the majority of citizens did not want this taught, it was out. And one other thing that skews our ideas of him as we look back is that he very much related to the fundamentalist. We talked about fundamentalists before. We talked about like the millennialist. In the Antichrist episode. And they were on this, we don't want any of that crap from Europe that made everything get so messed up and drew America back over there to lay out the law. We don't want any of that malarkey. Modernism. Mucking up our great Christian nation. So in the wake of World War I, the modernist or higher literary interpretation of the Bible came to be associated with Germany. No. Yes. And it's new theology which had led Germany to barbarism. Again. (laughs) And fundamentalists warned that it would lead us to the same demoralization. And really what you have to understand about the fundamentalists is they came upon their identity across different denominations and different scopes of belief by uniting in this militant opposition of modernism. It was a defining characteristic for the movement. And so evolution got swept up in this scary new things that we don't like category. Oh no. Scary new things. Not new things. Scary, scary new things. And so one fundamentalist minister, Riley, said, beware of the international Jewish Bolshevik Darwinist conspiracy. All the things. All the things we don't like. All the things. Let's put them all together. you have any more hyphens I can borrow. And so William Jennings Bryan spent a lot of time kind of creating this debate about evolution in schools. He really trumpeted it out. And he had access to radio. He had access to lecture circuits. He would go to churches. And he talked about this all the time. He wrote for church bulletins, etc. And so he had kind of created this trial. So he like had to be there. Oh, yes. That's what drew him out of retirement. Oh, yes. This This is a big one. Everything he'd been working for. Mm -hmm. Putting the band back together. And so when he announced that he intended to prosecute poor, poor little John Scopes in Dayton, Tennessee, there was only one man who could answer the call. Who? Greg? It was Greg. (laughs) Brian, you forget rights of one are greater than rights of many. Greg's like watching Star Trek on his iPhone. Hold on, I love this part. (laughs) This is so sad when Spock dies. So Greg was not available, unfortunately. But you know who was? Who could it be? Clarence Darrow. Your spirit animal. Yes, that's true. (laughs) But he was kind of like the ACLU's worst nightmare. They did not want him attached to the case. Right, he was the agnostic from Chicago, Mm -hmm. as he was called. He was openly hostile to Christianity. 
He said, whatever we call civilization is not due to religion, but skepticism. The modern world is the child of doubt and inquiry, as the ancient world was the child of fear and faith. He also called Christianity a slave religion and called its doctrine silly, impossible, and wicked. And also stated, from where does man get the selfish idea of his importance? He gets it from Genesis, of course. So, yeah, everyone was super excited he was going to be around. He wasn't... Controversial? No. Polarizing? You may say, if you listen to our other show, Audio Dime Museum, Clarence Darrow sounds familiar to me, and that would be true. It would be true, because we did a whole episode on the trial of Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. So, in 1924, they went to trial for the murder of Bobby Franks. Bobby Franks was a 14-year-old neighbor boy that they killed to prove that they could kill someone and get away with it. Where the hell did they get those ideas from? Nietzsche! Oh, well. Nietzsche. No one should read Nietzsche. No 18-year-old should read Nietzsche. (laughs) We go there. And they were. They were 18 at the time. And obviously, since we are talking about their trial, they did not get away with it. Spoilers. But Darrow took the case. And he entered a guilty plea, and he came there to put the death penalty on trial. He was all about putting ideas on trial. Right, he didn't care about Leopold and Loeb. He liked the paycheck. Oh, yes, he got paid lots of money. Because their parents were rich. And eventually, they did avoid the death penalty, but it's mostly because the judge believed that they were too young to be executed. And worst of all, for this case, for the Scopes trial, Darrow had used the murderer's misguided notions of evolution and Nietzschean philosophy, which drew on the notions of Darwin in defense of these men. Right, they thought they were the new Ubermensch. Ubermensch. If anyone ever says to you, hey, by the way, I think I'm an Ubermensch, run the fuck away. Yes. Fast. (laughs) Nothing good's ever happened after that was spoken aloud. But Darrow did have a soft spot for, for the criminal. I believe. I think that he found it interesting when people were deviant. And he said to a group of convicts once, it's not the bad people I fear so much as the good people. When a person is sure that he is good, he is nearly hopeless. He gets cruel and he believes in punishment. So interestingly enough, like Brian, Darrow was also very opposed to eugenics. He believed it was the ultimate violation of human rights. And him being one of the earliest humanists to be prominent, didn't sit so well with him. Right, that scared off a lot of the top evolutionist scientists that they had brought on to testify. He said, no one can feel the universal evolutionary relationship without being kinder, gentler, and more humane towards all the infinite forms of being that live with us and must die with us. So he had no interest in sterilizing people, killing people, because they weren't perfect. And another way that he made the case difficult is his famous agnosticism. He said he was agnostic. He was an atheist. They wanted to prove that there did not have to be a cognitive dissonance between being a religious person and being an evolutionist. And they were worried that him being a famous atheist would kind of, you know, undermine that idea a bit. Right. How could he prove that religion and science can go together if he is not a religious person and then this is my one like little heartbreak with darrow the one thing where i'm just like oh you weren't perfect 
So one of his biographers, Tierney, says, In some sense, Darrow and Minkin, H.L. Minkin, journalist, seem to want to refight the Civil War. They were Northerners, come down to tell the Southerners just how stupid they really were. Aw, bless your heart. Aw. They came down to say, aw, bless your heart. I believe he really thought that. Oh, yeah. Like, if they just saw one smart man, (laughs) they would get their shit together. We're still waiting. So we have our character set. We have William Jennings Bryan, the great commoner. Some called him the peerless leader. Oh, my. Some called him the fundamentalist pope. And then we have Darrow. The agnostic from Chicago. So our stage is set. The trial is to begin. We have our main parties. The battle is on. Oh, yes. And this is a battle of two titans. But if I was around at this time, I would have been really sad about this because the papers all said that H.G. Wells was going to be the defense attorney. The, the defense attorney. And you know why they said that? This is actually fun. Because he lambasted Brian every time he wrote publicly on evolution. Like he was his print nemesis. I would not want H.G. Wells to be my print nemesis. I would. Meanwhile, in Dayton. The party's starting. Oh, it's monkey time. There was a carnival atmosphere. That was the most common description from all the journalists who trudged up this little pig trail to get to Dayton. Monkey-themed everything. Souvenirs, entertainment, all of it. Fred Robinson, our old friend who indicted John Scopes in his drugstore. Oh, you know he was in on this. Oh, yes. He was selling a simian soda. <laughs> oh, no. But he had, like, T-shirts and everything. Oh, yes. A gorilla was brought in in a freight car so that people like could- Like a look- real gorilla? Yes. Oh, good. Monkeys. They brought real monkeys? Yes, they did. And in addition to the real monkeys- Oh, I'm sorry. Apes. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Local signage featured monkeys hawking patent medicines- and religious groups came and, like, gave stump speeches and would, like, have tent revivals on the lawn at the courthouse. And the police officers had Monkeyville police put on the sides of their motorcycles. They and, went all Oh, in. yes. And delivery vans had Monkeyville Express. It was a thing. But my favorite monkey. I have a favorite monkey. It's an ape. So my favorite ape, excuse me, was Mr. Joe Mendy. You really shouldn't call people apes. He was a chimpanzee. Okay, you can call him an ape. <laughs> he wore a suit, a different suit, each day to trial. He had a full wardrobe. He had a full wardrobe, including spats and an overcoat. And he played piano for the local children. And he walked with a walking stick. And he always wore a hat like a proper gentleman. He could also change a tire and drive a car. He's talented. He is amazing. Google him right now. So back at the courthouse... Meanwhile, back at the ranch, I mean the courthouse, it's time for jury selection. And I bet they get a bunch of religious people. Oh, yes. So the final breakdown comes to four Methodists, one Assembly of God, and one non-churchgoer along with six Baptists. All white men. All white men. You know it. Dara was normally very, very good good at jury selection he pioneered a lot of questioning techniques that are still very much used today but i bet the pool he had to pick from (laughs) it was not getting any prettier there was one juror and darrow asked him have you ever read on the subject of evolution 
And he answered, I can't read. And Darrow says, is that due to your eyes? He says, no, sir, I'm uneducated. And Hayes, one of the defense attorneys, said, it was said with such plain and simple dignity that we felt there was at least one honest man. I love that quote. I do, too. And after the selection, Mencken said, Mencken says so much about this trial, and it's all glorious. Such a jury in a legal sense may be fair, but it would certainly be spitting in the eye of reason to call it impartial. So the jury is selected. And now we begin to learn about the schemes, the plots, the plans of the prosecution. William Jennings Bryan and his Jewish lawyer? Yes. Okay, so the Samuel Undermeyer was a prominent attorney. He was the vice president of the American Jewish Congress. And Brian reached out to him because he thought it would be good to have people on the prosecution that were not fundamentalists to prove that this was a broader issue. He knew about optics. He got it. This shows how interesting of a guy he is. He really is. But unfortunately, Undermeyer was in England at the time and would not be able to attend the trial. However, he did give him a little advice. He says, adopt a narrow legal strategy. Highlight that the legislature is entitled to control the curriculum. Try to exclude expert testimony and discussion of evolution or religion. Stick to your belief that the question is about whether or not the state has the right to choose what is taught in the public schools that they fund. So you can say he told him to keep a narrow scope. Could right? you? Right. Could you say you that? Could. You could. Okay. <laughs> so you may say, oh, wait, this, this should be an open and shut case. First Amendment. Duh. So First Amendment, easy. Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. So it's important to note that not until Chief Justice Earl Warren did the interpretation of the First Amendment as we know it today exist, which began in 1953, laws were not overturned because of Things negatively affecting individual free speech rights. In the state of Tennessee, you felt the law is protected by the 10th Amendment. You may say, what's the 10th Amendment? It states that the federal government will have only the powers granted by the Constitution. All remaining powers reserved for the states are the people. So, as late as 1920, no law had ever been overturned on the basis of the First Amendment. That's crazy to me. It's just like used so frequently now. I know. So, with that in mind, maybe Tennessee was kind of, sort of, within their rights, as the law was then? And the reason that they were within their rights is because they just kind of did away with the question of where anything came from in biology. They were like, we're not going to teach creationism. We're not going to teach anything. <laughs> we're just going to leave that out. If they want to know, they can go research it on their own time. Or go to church. Whatever. They were going to go to church because it was Tennessee. All right, so what's Darrow? The agnostic from Chicago. It sounds like a boxing match. <laughs> it is. It is. The, this is the Thrilla and Manila white boy edition. <laughs> what does this crazy-ass Darrow have planned for us? Okay, actually, this is a really good segue so his intention is to rope-a-dope. Darrow is about to pull the ultimate rope-a-dope, but we're not even to that part yet. He knows, he knows that Jennings Bryan is not going to resist the urge 
to make this a sermon. He just can't because they have heard him. The entire defense, the entire country has heard him talk this issue up. Right, they both know this is a trial of ideas. No one gives a shit about Scopes teaching evolution. That is beside the point. William Jennings Bryan had said, like, the disgrace is not the Tennessee law. The disgrace is that the teachers should betray the trust imposed upon them by the taxpayers. And he's also said, it would be ridiculous to entrust the education of the children to an oligarchy of scientists. Am I an oligarchy of scientists? Yes, honey. I'm so proud cool. of you. You've arrived. I've always wanted to be in an oligarchy. Me too. I'll never be, though. They don't let girls. <laughs> the oligarchy of podcasting. <laughs> Ta-da! So it was really pretty obvious to them that the state was going to try and ignore questions of evolution and religion, which is insane. So they aimed to prove that evolution did not preclude men from having faith. And they had a lot of experts in both religion and science lined up to testify that there were ways to reconcile the two. Right, of course, that seems extremely logical. You get some scientists, you get some priests, they all say it's okay. We move Bam. on. They also wanted to prove that this was not just some cockamamie newfangled idea, as the future prime minister said, but they wanted to get across that it was a widely acknowledged principle within the scientific community. Right, because it was. It was. There was not that much debate about it, even though there was very little evidence. So, of course, the trial begins with a, let's not have a trial. That would be easy. They're like, this law is bollocks. But they've got to do that. Right, because they want to appeal it. They know that they're probably not going to get a not guilty verdict in Dayton, but they have to get their grounds in so that they're in the record for the appeals. All the way to the Supreme Court, they think. Yes, So this is Darrow's moment. This is the moment when the stage goes dark and the spotlight comes on and he comes out swinging. And I love you all so much that I'm going to share with you some of Darrow's remarks from this motion. And I'm going to tell you that this has gotten me through a really dark time recently. (laughs) Through a current political climate. Yes. So there are no two human machines alike. And no two human beings who have the same experiences and their ideas of life and philosophy grow out of their construction of the experiences that we meet on our journey through life. It is impossible, if you leave freedom in the world, to mold the opinions of one man upon the opinions of another. Only tyranny can do that. And your constitutional provision, providing a freedom of religion, was meant to meet that emergency. He goes on to say, can a legislative body say you cannot read a book or take a lesson or make a talk on science until you first find out whether you're saying against Genesis? It can. Unless that constitutional provision protects me, it can. Can it say to the astronomer, you cannot turn your telescope upon the infinite planets and suns and stars that fill space, lest you find that the earth is not the center of the universe and there is not any firmament between us and heaven. Can it? It could, except for the work of Thomas Jefferson, which has been woven into every state constitution of the Union and has stayed there like a flaming sword to protect the rights of man against the ignorance and bigotry. And when it is permitted to overwhelm them, then we are taken in a sea of blood and ruin that all miseries and tortures and carry-on of the Middle Ages 
would be as nothing. They would need to call back these men once more. But there are provisions in the Constitution that they left. I love the idea of Thomas Jefferson with a flaming sword. Oh my God, me too. He goes on to say, There are people who believe that organic life and the plants and the animals and the man and the mind of man and the religion of man are subjects of evolution and that they are not through and that the God in which they believed did not finish creation on the first day, but he's still working to make something better and higher still out of human beings who are next to God and that evolution has been working forever and will work forever. They believe it. And then he returns to the rights of an American citizen. But your life and my life and the life of every American citizen depends, after all, upon the tolerance and forbearance of his fellow man. If men are not tolerant, if men cannot respect each other's opinions, if men cannot live and let live, then no man's life is safe. And then we get the big close. Ignorance and fanaticism is ever busy and needs feeding. Always it is feeding and gloating for more. Today it is the public school teachers, tomorrow the private, and the next day the preachers and the lecturers and the magazines and the books and the newspapers. After a while, Your Honor, it is setting man against man and creed against creed until with flying banners and beating drums we are marching backward to the glorious ages of the 16th century when bigots lighted faggots to burn the men who dared to bring any intelligence and enlightenment and culture to the human mind. Did he drop a mic after Take me to church! (laughs) Take me to church, Darrow! So he is setting up his argument against what he thinks William Jennings Bryan is going to do. That he is going to get on his pulpit and start preaching. That's pretty safe bet. So what does William Jennings Bryan and the prosecution do? Well, everybody knew that they weren't going to do it during opening or during their actual case. Everyone expected that to come at the close. So no one was too surprised when the state's case was very straightforward, super bare bones. Narrow scope. That narrow scope. Yes, that's the one. So they stuck to their narrow scope. And their arguments, these state's arguments, took between one and two hours. Really? It's probably as long as Darrow's opening. It, you're joking, but it was two and a half hours. Oh. So they call Walter White. Heisenberg. Yes, that's the one. The superintendent. And they're like, hey, Scopes used this book. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. Next witness. They call two boys who were his students. And they point to a part in Hunter's Civic Biology that discusses evolution. And they're like, y'all cover this? they're like, yes, sir. Okay. So then Darrow's like, oh, I'm going to cross-examine everybody because it's just funsies. Because it's the middle of July in freaking Tennessee. It's 5,000 degrees. And everyone has got palm fans and I'm not even wearing a jacket. But he has suspenders. There were two suspender men at that trial. So on cross, one of the boys is up there and he's like, did that mean old man teach you evolution? Yes, sir. Did it hurt you? Um, uh, no, sir. Did he teach you anything else wicked? Um, I don't think so. All right, thank you. And then they talk to Fred Robinson. They're like, you sell the book? Yes. And they're like, okay, so look, here's evolution. It's in the book. He taught from the book. Boys say he did it. We rest. They rest? Mm-hmm. Just that? Yep. Okay. Talk about anticlimactic, right? So there's a, 
apparently, in 1925 and didn't see there was a rule. I don't know if it still stands. Feel free to inform me if you know that the defendant could not testify on his own behalf unless he took the stand first. Interesting. Right. So, so Scopes never took the stand. Right. Darrow calls his first witness and they like inform him of the law because he's an ignorant Yankee. He's like, oh, I know. Every single word that was said against my defendant was true. But let's talk about the ideas. <laughs> so then he's like, let's talk about the ideas. And the prosecution says, hold now, son. I said, what? None of that. What do you mean? None of that. None of what? Move to exclude all expert testimony as incompetent. No facts. Buck facts. The defense was not happy about this. Mm-mm. I'm sure Dara threw a little hissy fit. He had several. It was hot. They had pulled in people from all over the country to testify. There was a place called The Mansion, which was this large abandoned hotel in Dayton. And they'd spruced it up and had all the scientific experts there. And even Darrow and Scope stayed there for a short time. Locals joked that they used to think it was haunted, but now they knew it was haunted. Oh, that's one of those Tennessee knee slappers. That's a good one. Yuck, yuck, yuck. But since all expert testimony had to be submitted as written statement, some of the best scientific minds in the nation were camped in this old haunted mansion, sitting there smoking cigarettes, typing on their borrowed typewriters, writing down as much as they could about evolution to where anyone could understand it. I think that... When we were first discussing this, you were like, did they give them blue books? I know, it feels like they're like, test, here, Here's go. an exam, write everything you know. Write it. And Scope said this was one of the best and most formative experiences of his life. I can't imagine just like kind of sitting around smoking, hanging out, drinking coffee or iced tea <laughs> with all of these prominent scientists. It'd all just there on your behalf, too. Right. So Hayes, one of the attorneys, his name was Arthur Garfield Hayes. His father named him for a string of conservative presidents and he went on to be one of the founding attorneys of the aclu good job dad there's no way to ensure rebellion like that (laughs) but he says is there anything in the law that insists the determination of the court or jury must be made in ignorance and then we are going to finally meet i have been waiting waiting to introduce all of you to this fantastic gentleman named ben mckenzie the Colonel Sanders of the trial. That's how I think of him personally. Mackenzie was the retired, the former attorney general for the state of Tennessee. And he was, in my opinion, about half senile at this point. He was the other suspender man. <laughs> yes. And like he walks into court one day and he's like, Yana, let the record show that Colonel Darrow and I are the only two suspender men here this morning. Colonel Darrow? Oh, yes. He named him Colonel Darrow. Oh, just for funsies. Darrow liked it. He's like, I hope they'll call me this when I go back north. And he's like, I want them to, sir. I want them to. But Mackenzie says, Yana, we have done cross the Rubicon. So that's Southern. That's its own language. And what he means by we have done cross the Rubicon, let me translate, is your honor has already ruled on the defense's motion to dismiss the charges on constitutional ground. Therefore, the law stands as it is written and enacted by the legislature and executive branches of the Tennessee government. Therefore, the only question before us today in this court is the guilt or innocence of the defendants based on the facts of the case. Thanks for the translation. You're welcome. I want to hear what he has to say about evolution. 
Oh, I will tell you. Is there like a chicken and egg analogy? Oh, it's it's good. He says, they want to put words into God's mouth and have him say that he issued some sort of protoplasm or soft dish rag. A dish rag? And put it in the ocean and said, oh boy, if you wait around about 6,000 years, I'll make something out of you. And they tell me there's no ambiguity about that. That's the best explanation of primordial soup ever. It's beaten Bill Nye. Oh, dish rag. So there was lots of arguing in the court over this protoplasm in the sea or this dish rag. But, like, they had to establish, like, the judge, Judge Ralston, believed that he, like the Blues Brothers, was on a mission from God. This was a divine assignment that he had been given. And he took it very seriously. And he wanted to know if the prosecution would accept that if God made the cell or if God made the dish rag, that it was a divine dish rag and still divine creation. This was a lot, and there was much arguing about this. So William Jennings Bryan takes his turn after Mackenzie sits down. People kept stealing Mackenzie's chair, too. It's another fun fact. Oh, boy, you're sitting in my chair. Don't make me snap my suspenders and slap you back ways. <laughs> no, he said, Judge, please tell the reporters to stop stealing my chair. I know no one likes us, but we are a necessary evil in the courtroom. <laughs> nice. But Brian gets up and he does get very fire and brimstone at this moment. And he says, the Christian believes man came from above. But the evolutionist says we must have come from below. And this is referencing like the classic image of the creature coming out of the depths of the primordial soup mm-hmm. or hell whatever whatever dish rag dish rag and so he lays out his concerns that it's corrupt in the utes not in new jersey and then he goes into like you know i've received so many letters from mothers telling me how their children don't believe in the lord god anymore and i just can't bear it and he's still really 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 peeved that we're not going to teach the bible in school but he gets it and he also brings up those ideas about evolution that we talked about earlier. You know, that it was just a theory, which you hear a lot. But he even downgrades it to a hypothesis, saying, There had never been found a single species, the origin of which could be traced to another species. Darwin himself said he thought it was strange that with two or three million species, they had not been able to find one that they could trace to another. Along with that, he brings up all the evolutionary stuff about Nietzsche and these ubermensches that Darrow defended. And he misquotes Darrow in court. <laughs> and Darrow does not take kindly to that. Oh, no. He grabs the book from him and finishes reading the statement, which goes against everything he's been trying to prove. It was kind of a damn moment. Okay, so this part of the trial is mostly amusing up until this point. But then this man named Dudley Malone stands up and he is an Irish Catholic from New York who they say speaks in a very clipped accent. And he is a divorce attorney, very famous for being a divorce attorney. He himself is divorced and remarried, meaning he's not a very good Catholic, not a very good Catholic, but he's the closest thing they have to a religious man on the side of the defense. Like you went to church once. Can you talk about God? And he's like, yeah, I got it. I got it. Sure. So he says in the trial, this is not a conflict of personages. It is a conflict of ideas. 
They say the Bible contains the truth. If the world of science can produce any truth or facts not in the Bible as we understand it, then destroy science, but keep our Bible. We say, keep your Bible. Keep it as your consolation. Keep it as your guide, but keep it where it belongs, in the world of your own conscience, in the world of your individual judgment. Keep your Bible in the world of theology, where it belongs, and do not try to tell an intelligent world that these books, written by men who knew none of the accepted fundamental facts of science, can be put into a course of science. The law says that no theory of creation can be taught in a course of science, except one which conforms to the theory of divine creation as set forth in the Bible. It says that only the Bible shall be taken as an authority for the subject of evolution. For God's sake, let the children have their minds kept open, close no doors to their knowledge, shut no doors from them. Make the distinction between theology and science. Let them have both. Let them both be taught. Let them both live. Let them be reverent. We have come in here ready for battle. We have come in here for this duel. But does the opposition mean by duel that our defendant shall be strapped to a board and that they alone shall carry the sword? Is our weapon to be taken from us so the duel will be entirely one-sided? There is never a duel with the truth. The truth always wins, and we are not afraid of it. The truth is no coward. The truth does not need the law. The truth does not need the forces of government. The truth does not need Mr. Bryan. The truth is imperishable, eternal, and immortal, and needs no human agency to support it. We are ready to tell the truth as we understand it, and we do not fear all the truth they can present as facts. We are ready, we are ready, we feel we stand with progress. We feel we stand with science, we feel we stand with intelligence, we feel we stand with fundamental freedom in America. We are not afraid. Where is the fear? We meet it. Where is the fear? We defy it. Damn! Many who attended the trial or listened on the loudspeakers they had set up in five different lawns all over town. Oh, we didn't mention... This is the case was really big because it was broadcast nationally. It was broadcast live. WGN in Chicago obtained the rights to air the trial, and they actually were given the permission to rearrange the courtroom so they could put all their equipment in. And they broadcast this nationwide live. And it was the first time this was ever done with a court case. So a lot of people who heard this said that this was the rhetorical highlight of the trial over Darrow, over Brian. Oh, I'm sure they love that. I think Darrow was kind of proud of him. So what did the prosecution say to this drop-the-mic oratory highlight moment? Stewart was the real head of the prosecution. He was the current attorney general. And he was pretty straight-laced, very by-the-book, rigorous, stalwart lawman but at this moment he gets religion and he gets the spirit moves him and he has his take me to church moment come to jesus let's hear it why have we not the right to bar the door to science when it comes within the four walls of god's church upon the earth we have the right to pursue knowledge we have the right to participate in scientific investigation but if the court please, when science strikes upon 
that which man's eternal hope is founded, then I say the foundation of man's civilization is about to crumble. They say this is a battle between religion and science, and if it is, I want to serve notice now that in the name of the great God I am on the side of religion. I say bar the door and do not allow science to enter. Bar the door to science? God. It's not quite the timeless bit of rhetoric we heard on the other side. So at the end of the day, Dara's kind of a dick to the judge. And I think he's quite humorous. So the end of their little confrontation ends, I hope you do not mean to reflect on the court. And Darrow says, well, your honor, I guess you have the right to hope. So the next day he is cited for contempt and they tell him that they want a $5,000 bond. But someone from the crowd in Tennessee quickly comes and says, got it. Oh, wow. No problem. And then Darrow's like, yeah, I was kind of an asshole. I'm sorry about that, Judge. And the judge recites a religious poem from memory. Oh, my God. And weeps openly as he tells him that he is forgiven by not just himself, not just the judge, but also God. Okay. And he throws out the citation and the money associated with it. And so with all this argument, it is ruled that expert testimony is unnecessary and must be entered in written statements. And this is so it can be used for the appeals process. And the prosecution is given no chance for rebuttal. Within the written statements, they reference things like the Piltdown Man, also known as the Dawn Man. They also talk about the Hildeberg Man, the Neanderthal Jaw, and the Java Man. So they are presenting what they think... At least is scientific evidence at this time. And a cast of the skull of Piltdown Man is entered into evidence. That's right. Piltdown Man as evidence. Along with the King James Bible. Because they're like, oh, there's so many different versions of the Bible. And they tried to argue this point forever. And eventually the judge is like, son, in Tennessee, this is the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. And so knowing that. Their experts can't testify, and they really don't have a snowball's chance in hell of winning this case. Dara's like, he tells Mankin, tomorrow I am going to call an expert. Mankin's like, they said no experts. And he's like, oh, I'm going to call the world's greatest authority on religion, he thinks. William Jennings Bryan. That's the one. So it's completely unprecedented for one attorney to call the contesting attorney as a witness. Thank you, folks, for coming back to WGN Radio. We have here the Pagan in Dayton versus the Pope of the Fundamentalist Church. And we're going to be starting off at round one. We have a lovely lady holding up a big sign. She is wearing a ankle-length skirt and clutching a chimpanzee. She looks ravishing, folks. Absolutely ravishing. And the girl doesn't look bad either. Waka, waka, waka. So we bring you back live to the courtroom in Dayton, Tennessee. Everyone thought this was a terrible idea. Everyone, that is, except William Jennings Bryan. They did not come here to try this case. They came here to try revealed religion. I am here to defend it, and they can ask me any question they please. Hear, hear. Amen. For those whom you call yokels. I never called them yokels. That is the ignorance of Tennessee, the bigotry. Oh, you mean those who are applauding you. 
Those are the people whom you insult. You insult every man of science and learning in the world because he does not believe in your full religion. I will not stand for that. Oh, for what he's doing? I am talking to both of you. Oh, you never looked into any other religions? No, sir. I've been so well satisfied with the Christian religion that I've spent no time trying to find argument against it. Afraid you might find some? No, sir. I'm not afraid now that you will show me any. I have all the information I want to live by and to die by. And that's all you're interested in? I'm not looking for any more on religion. You don't care how old the earth is, or how old man is, or how long animals have been here? I'm not so much interested in that. And you've never made investigation to find out? No, sir, I've never. The purpose here today is to cast ridicule on everybody who believes in the Bible. We have the purpose of preventing bigots and ignoramuses from controlling the education of the United States, and you know it, and that is all. I'm simply trying to protect the word of God against the greatest atheist or agnostic in the United States. Did you ever discover where Cain got his wife? No, sir. I leave the agnostics hunt for her. I am exempting you on your fool ideas that no intelligent Christian on earth believes. All right. So about the age of the earth. It was created in six days. That's what I believe. And they had an evening and the morning before the three days and the three periods. Before that fourth day when the sun was finally created. All right. That settles it. Now, if you call those periods, they may have been a long time. They might have been. The creation might have been going on for a very long time. It might have continued for millions of years. Ha ha! Gotcha! So that's Dara's gotcha moment? That is Dara's gotcha moment. Because Brian kept insisting that there was no way to interpret the Bible that was not literal. He would say no man can extrapolate on the word of God that which is not there. There is no subtext. There is no reading between the lines. And that was his statement that sort of validated the law. Like, oh, well, anybody can understand the Bible. You don't need to interpret it. You don't need to go outside the text. Derrida would say there's nothing outside the text, but that's for another day. But in this moment, he gets Brian to admit that creation could have been going on for millions of years, which is very much an interpretation. So you would think that would just kill it. Done. No. (laughs) No, this is Tennessee in 1925. Come on, people. So after... Court adjourns. They were supposed to put Brian back on the stand the next day, and the defense is like, yeah, we're okay. Also, Brian had demanded that if he were going to be examined, he would have the right to examine Darrow, Malone, and Hayes. And Darrow's response was, all three at once. Oh, my. Oh, my. But they came in, and they're like, we believe it's injurious to our purpose here to continue this line of questioning, and suggested that maybe the jury just find Scopes guilty so that they can get on with their appeals process. What do you mean? Oh, they were like, uncle. They just gave up. They were like, y'all are not going to play. Y'all are not playing right. So they were just like, oh, he's guilty, whatever. Yeah, but they said, you know, like, we obviously can't say he's guilty. We kind of think he's guilty. And Stuart's like, I gotcha. This is for the appeals. And he's like, yeah, it's for the appeals. I'll help you file him. No problem. And they knew that every night Brian had been retiring to his Airbnb house that he had you know, sent people to the mountains and rented out their home and working on these closing arguments and he had doted on them so lovingly and, and he didn't get to use them no he didn't at all so scopes is found guilty and he has to pay the fine 
Brian offered to pay it for him. Nice. Yeah, I thought it was. ACLU, I think, took care of it. They also offered him a really good scholarship, which is cool. Right. He went on to be an engineer, right? Petroleum engineer in South America where nobody knew who he was. With the monkeys. (laughs) With the monkeys. Mackenzie ends with a big flowery, y'all come back. I hope you will come back to Dayton and find us and drink sweet tea and pick magnolia blossoms in the fields. He and Darrow remain friends, and that's really what comes out of the trial. But William Jennings Bryan is not going to let the shit go. Oh, no. So he immediately releases his full closing arguments to the press and begins a rapid-fire tour around Tennessee. And he's offering a parsed-down 25,000-word version of his arguments as a stump speech. But he's greeted like this conquering hero. And people on his side of the argument really believe that guilty verdict is the work of God and they have their victory for their cause. And William Jennings Bryan is the man who made it possible. One reporter wrote, the people of Tennessee would not be surprised if a flaming chariot came down for the old man and carried him off to heaven. Speaking of, five days later, after attending the church and offering prayer for the morning service, he returns home and promptly dies during a post-lunch nap. That's right. William Jennings Bryant died five days after the trial ended. And Mencken, who says so many wonderful things, privately gloated, we killed that son of a bitch. That's not nice. I know. Publicly, he wrote, God aimed at Darrow and missed and hit Bryant by mistake. Probably accurate. Yes. And he also quipped that if any barber in Dayton had saved his hair, he could use it to cure gallstones. Which, if you would like to buy some William Jennings Bryan hair to cure your gallstones, go to the Just a Story store. We will happily sell them to you. And a lot of people said this was a murder. Really? Yes, and they meant that Darrow's merciless questioning of the old man on the stand killed him. Oh my god. And so one person approached Darrow and was like, They say he died of a broken heart. And Darrow said, Ah, a broken heart, nothing. He died of a busted belly. So he became a martyr for the fundamentalist cause. He was even buried in Arlington, and his pallbearers were senators. But this was a hugely popular trial. Like we said, it was broadcast nationally. There were songs written about it. It actually created an entire genre called scope songs. This trial is so well known. It's like if I would have had to guess before reading about it, I would have said, oh, this went to the Supreme Court. No, it didn't. It didn't at all. They did appeal to the Tennessee State Supreme Court. And the ACLU tried to block Clarence Darrow from being involved again because he's so polarizing, especially after he murdered William Jennings Bryan. I know. But he was like, fuck y'all. The local attorney failed to file the proper petitions in time so that expert testimony could be used. Oops. God damn it. They could only appeal on constitutional grounds. But they had 14 points that they'd entered into the record, so that was pretty good. You know, they had a good chance. However, the Supreme Court upheld the law. Well, they could appeal to the National Supreme Court, Supreme Court of the United States. Well, they could, but except for these were crafty bastards. Damn it. They threw out the conviction and the indictment threw it all out because the judge and not the jury had set the fine. Oh, 
crafty. Crafty. And then they all agreed and they kind of sent out a memorandum that's like, hey, we shouldn't try anyone using this law again. But as history goes, we know that a trial in Arkansas. Yes, Epperson. Did eventually overturn similar laws throughout the land. Yes, and that was in 1974. Ooh, it took a little time. Yes, it did. But the thing about this trial is that it has gone down as legend. And depending on who you talk to is who the winner is. Oh, absolutely. Everyone just picks their side and says, well, clearly, look at the evidence. My side won. Like at the time, the fundamentalists took this as a great victory. But as time moves on, the popular perceptions change. Absolutely. So... They first start to change in a major way in 1931, when a book called Only Yesterday, An Informal History of the 1920s, is written by a man called Frederick Lewis Allen. And this is a book that kind of compiles popular news stories based on what he can remember writing or reading about him and kind of his own memory. And he kind of says like, oh, and this was the death knell in the coffin of fundamentalism. And he intended this to be an entertaining romp through the last 10 years. However, because it was nonfiction and it became like the best-selling nonfiction book of the decade, people kind of just assumed that it was legit history. And then it started like getting used in textbooks. They would take excerpts from it and just stick it in a textbook. This looks like fact. Why not? And then we get McCarthyism. Right, so the play Inherit the Wind which the movie we talked about was written just like the crucible crucible just like the crucible written by arthur miller was like a response to mccarthyism absolutely and there's some major changes in this fictional retelling by robert e lee not that one and jerome lawrence and they depict william jennings bryant as just an incompetent bigot they make him just laughable and very 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 dogmatic And it is so clear that the Clarence Darrow character is the hero. And they make him more tolerant. And they put in these little antiseptic things, like to kind of cleanse the palate of all his agnosticism and fire. He doesn't say the busted belly line. At the end, he has the biology book and the Bible. He takes from the courtroom when he's left alone there to consider what's happened. He reaches over and he grabs the biology book. And he grabs the Bible and he weighs both of them in his hands as if to see which one is heavier and then puts both of them in his briefcase and walks out with his tolerance intact. Darrow would never do that. No, he wouldn't. So it is so interesting how this trial and the legend around it, it truly is a legend because it's different depending about who says it. It changes. The Supreme Court decision came down involving religious instruction in schools. Scalia was this dissenting opinion, and he cited the Scopes trial, and the majority opinion also cited the Scopes trial. I mean, that just says it right there. You can use it however you want. So interestingly enough, this is still a battle that's being fought in the courtrooms. We're still seeing legislation about things like intelligent design or Very recently in Texas, there was something about language that questions or undermines Darwin being kept in a book in order to preserve creationist rights to believe and things like that. We've not let it go. And it just shows you the importance that people give their right to not have their beliefs 
tested. Right. Like William Jennings Bryan says, like, shall we lose the consciousness of God's presence in our daily life by this? You know, why are we questioning this so hard? The evidence has become insurmountable, but the same arguments still apply. Well, we're post-truth. But is it? Is it this realization that we're animals? Oh, Brian was very insulted by that. He's like, they would call man a mammal. The nerve. You know, is this that connection with ideas like a Bigfoot? Like, is this some step between some missing link between our humanity and our animalistic ideas? The things which much must be repressed, the things that we push down into the abyss. And maybe Bigfoot is the personification of that idea of sometimes when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back. But the idea that something like Bigfoot, some kind of missing link is out there, is so fascinating. Even Jane Goodall, one of the most noted primatologists, says, I'm sure they exist. Well, I'm a romantic, so I always wanted them to exist. She sees, I feel, that there's like a connection there. This might be our subconscious kind of ideas about our animalistic instincts and nature. You'll see Bigfoot enthusiasts and people that have come across and say things like, I was there and I was hunting and I was going to shoot him, but he had eyelashes and he looked to human. And as much as it could be a connection, maybe it's also a really comfortable way to separate ourselves from that animalistic nature. Maybe we're able to cast that off on this idea of Bigfoot. Maybe we're able to say like, oh, we've evolved beyond having those urges because you see that guy over there. He has them. He is still an animal, even though he looks like us. Aren't we the lucky ones? Maybe that's just a story. Maybe it's just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.